Welcome to the Great Bays Tennis Podcast. I'm Steve Smith, episode 108. I am flying solo again tonight. Uh, Andres Barbosa told me that we should have this chair at Vic Braden Tennis College. It's in our classroom, and it's a chair that no one sits in. He said it would be much better than having two empty studio chairs. A great guest tonight, Austin Krychek. Let me go through a few things on his bio. One thing that we've been doing recently with junior tennis players, teach a little humility, a little perspective, a little motivation. And sometimes I just have them repeated after me, but I have had them e- be emailing it to me. I love the game. I'm a student of the game. My ability to teach tennis is improving. My ability to play tennis is improving. Currently, my UTR is such and such, but it will improve because of my attitude and my work ethic. I think it's a very good exercise to have young players write their bio. The late Stephen Covey with the author of Seven Habits of Highly Successful People. I think sometimes it's a little bit morbid to have someone write their own eulogy. That was an exercise that he recommended. But let me go through Austin Krychek's bio very quickly. Born June 16th, 1990, so he's 32 years old. I've known him since he was seven years old. Brandon, Florida, I think that's going to be the birthplace. Confirm that, but he's a Florida guy. 6'2", lefty, parents, Rob and Sherry, both athletes. I think that's a plus. We'll touch, talk, touch, touch upon that. His wife, an athlete as well, played tennis at the University of Illinois. Junior tennis. So many things you say about junior tennis, but his junior career can just be highlighted, really, with Kalamazoo. He won Kalamazoo. That says it in one word in this country, the boys' nationals. You win that, and you get to go to the main draw U.S. Open. Um, actually, uh, I was really moved by that. I was taken as his guest. I went with his, his father in Austin. He played tes- tennis at Texas A&M. Played under Steve Denton, who's been a guest on our podcast. Austin was Big 12 Freshman of the Year, Big 12 Player of the Year twice, junior, senior year, NCAA doubles champion. So you can kind of tell that his bio is a... a you know, a little bit different than the one that we're having our beginning players go through now. All-American multiple times, singles and doubles. Texas A&M uh, Hall of Fame, I believe it's called the Ring of Honor. Singles, highest ranking, was 94 in the world. Perhaps his best win, Kevin Anderson. Doubles, highest ranking, I believe it's current, is uh, 15. Perhaps his best win, maybe there's more than one we could ask, over the Bryan brothers. ATP doubles. 15 finals, five titles, challenger and singles, 12 finals, eight titles. In future and challenger doubles, 52 finals. I won 32 times. 52 finals, wow. Just recently, he was in the French Open final. Uh, according to uh, my research, my homework, he's um, uh, nearly $2 million um, in career earnings. Played world team tennis. I know as a kid, he was on the U.S. Davis Cup squad as I think a 17, 18-year-old. I would guess that he's currently the second-ranked American in doubles behind uh, Rajiv Ram. We'd have to double-check that. This is pretty impressive on a, a resume. He's an Olympian with his longtime friend uh, from Tennessee, Tennis Sangren. Uh, they finished fourth. He's a member of the ATP Council, currently coached by Philip Farmer. But Austin Krychek, so many things. I know, know Austin and his parents really well. It's a great story, and it'll be fun to talk to him. Let me get him on the phone. 
if I can do that with my telephone skills. And I hope it works. There you go. Loud ring. You may have to turn down your, uh, turn down your machine while you listen to this. Hello, Austin. Hey, Steve. Austin Krychek, welcome to the Great Base Tennis Podcast. Thank you. Appreciate you having me. Yeah. So should we start testing you right away? Life gives you the test first <laughs> in less than a second? That's a good point. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> I'll, I'll start with a, I'll start with, uh, a test question. Uh, okay. Just read your bio. You have a very impressive bio. Uh, I was telling the listeners that we have our juniors just cite, recite, I'm a student of the game. I love the game. I'm learning to teach. I'm learning to play. Currently, my UTR is such and such, but it's going to improve because of my work ethic and, and attitude. Because I think, as you know, in junior tennis, we'll talk about junior tennis. People get a little bit too uptight about ten and under tennis. But your mother is from Pittsburgh. Beautiful Sherry. Yep. Here's, yep. here's a question for you, Krychek. What, what do the pro teams in Pittsburgh have in common? They're all... They've all won a lot of championships, except maybe not. I don't know about the Pirates, to be honest with you. <laughs> but I like the Steelers and the Penguins. The Penguins. I got a got a question for you on the Penguins coming up. Don't right. have too many on Pittsburgh. You you played <laughs> you you played the uh, junior, not the junior, the futures tournament there probably more than once, huh? I did. Yep, the clay court event up there. Of course, I'm sure you've been there, obviously, with your mom. I know you've been there, but. I've had so many people tell me they really like Pittsburgh. I've never been to Pittsburgh. Oh, really? But here's the answer, Krychek. The, <laughs> the, the teams in Pittsburgh all wear the same colors. Oh, yeah, okay. That yeah, makes sense. They all wear the same color. But, so you're 0 for, huh. you're 0 for 1 right now, Krychek. All right. Which, uh, <laughs> the, um, I know the Penguins have messed that up because every once in a while you see them wearing light blue. But for the most part, they're, uh, what, gold, black? Gold and black. Yep. Yellow, yellow and black, yep. All right, Austin. Who is the captain of the Pittsburgh Penguins? Who currently is the captain of the Pittsburgh Penguins? Currently is? Oh, man. I wouldn't know that one. I, to be honest with you, I don't, I don't follow hockey as much as I should. I, I am a bandwagon St. Louis Blues fan now because my wife's um, I have that, family's in St. Louis. I have that in my and, notes. Uh, I, read, <laughs> I read, you know, in college tennis where they have the uh, – the, the like they if you go to a, a college tennis team's website you know they have the questions for uh -huh. the player what's their favorite movie and what's their favorite such and such and yeah so I researched that your wife she loves the same Louis blues that's her favorite she does yeah she she's a big blues fan big Cardinals fan um, yeah I think I mean honestly St Louis is a, is a fantastic sports city um, from what I've seen that the people love all the teams they're diehards which is pretty cool that's you know, That's the, awesome. the St. Louis Blues, a lot of the players, uh, it's amazing. The ones that are, they're traded. Uh, uh -huh. I think uh, Kuchuk, uh would, would be in that category where they could, they go back and live in Pittsburgh or excuse me, excuse me, I got that wrong. They go back, hey, they, go back they go back and live in St. Louis. You know, they play at St. Louis and then there, they go on right. and get traded, but that's um, how much they love St. Louis. Huh. Yeah, that sounds all right. I mean, it, it does seem like a very, yeah, you feel like you're home there. You know, I mean, obviously Midwest and um, every experience I've had in St. Louis has been fantastic, that's for sure. 
Yeah, it's another place I've trained tennis teachers that work in St. Louis. One of my friends uh, works at WashU, Matt Gow. They they love it. Okay, here's another question. We'll uh, I'll ask this one because we're on the hockey. I only have three hockey questions, but I'm going to number four, skipping three. Your parents were both athletes. Your mother was a professional water skier. Father played the big three sports in high school, football, basketball, baseball. Played basketball yep. in college. We can talk about this. I think it really helps to uh, be a college athlete. Is that your phone or our phone? Um, Someone's calling in. Oh, sorry, I apologize not, to our listeners. We're, no we're amateurs here. So your parents were both athletes. Mother's professional water skier. Dad played basketball in college. When you were young, about eight years old, I gave you and your father tickets to watch the Tampa Bay Lightning hockey game. <laughs> you were only eight, so it was your father. It's all on him. What was what was the mistake? <laughs> the mistake was we left after the second period because we thought that it was um, that there only there were two halves in the game. We we didn't know the that there were three three periods, and um, he actually. I'm sure he mentioned this as well, but he was trying to teach me something while we were there. And he was like, Hey, um, trust me on this one. We're going to, we're going to beat the traffic here and, and beat the crowd and get out to the parking lot before everyone kind of has a mad rush home. So about a few minutes left in the second period, we, we darted out of the stadium and half jogged to the car. And we were shocked that we beat everybody by that much. And we found out that there was a whole nother period to go and and i think we if i remember right we missed a, a good ending ending to the game and tampa bay i think came back and won um which was which was kind of funny but yeah i had i had no idea either to be honest i don't, I don't think <laughs> i don't think after that i ever called your father by his first name it was just cry check <laughs> yeah he, he earned that one <laughs> with, with, uh, with, with, there's always a positive and negative the positive is that it just lets you know he truly was a basketball guy that's right no, and, we, and we beat the traffic no, he was, a, he was a guest on the podcast. I mean, uh, don't want to digress, but uh, we did have fun asking him about being a referee and kicking Bobby Knight, the famous basketball coach, out of the game. Okay, now sure. I've gone yeah. from Pittsburgh. Now I'm going to Ohio, where your father's from. Uh, your father's a farm, bo- farm boy, milk cows. You've heard the story a few hundred times. Before the sun For came sure. up, he was out there milking cows. My question is, has Austin Krychek ever milked a cow? I have not. Nope. Um, yeah, that's uh, probably disappointing a little bit, but <laughs> oh, I, I, <laughs> nope. I, I don't really know how disappointing it is. I've never milked a cow either. <laughs> no, I have not. I, I actually, I love being up there. I, I really enjoy um, being in small towns and, and um, now kind of being an adopted Texan. I, I love the small town way of life and, and we try to get outside and, and hunt and fish and do things like that, that I never did when I was younger in Florida uh, nowadays here in Texas and, and with my best friend from college. But uh, so any chance we get to go up there to Cedarville in Ohio and, and stay with family, it's always, um it's always a really special place. My wife loves it up there as well. So we always enjoy that. We just never, we never made the wake up call at six, at least, um at least the milk cows. We might've been out there hitting serves or something, but, <laughs> but, but not the milk cows. Well, I will get into that. I know you're a really hard worker, and you've. Uh, I was told by uh, the gentleman, Gabe Hermilio, told me that uh, you were easily one of the hardest workers at Boletari's. We'll get into that. So you have, you have got up early in the morning. We know you're, you know you're not lazy, but I, I don't, I'm not really interested in learning how to milk a cow at this stage in life either. <laughs> but, uh, I wonder if Rob's forgot. It's been a few years since he's milked a cow. 
Uh, I say he probably hasn't. I, I was probably like riding a bike, I would imagine, but yeah, who knows? I think so. I think, <laughs> I think you're right. Okay, so now I'm going to the Rob Krejcik questions. Does his, right. does his son know what is an ifer? I do. Yeah, I've been told that story quite a few times as well, and um, yeah, I'm still I'm still trying not to be an ifer. So <laughs> that's a good one. Yeah. If I did this, if I did that, if I did this, um, senior moment, I'm having this all the time. The motivational speaker name, it'll come to me. I should have done this Uh, and I should have done this and I should have done that. Would it be Zig Ziglar or or one of those? No, not Ziglar. I love Ziglar. Um, big, tall guy, huge guys anyway. But anyway, I should have done this. I should have done that. In the end, I I should all over myself. And we, and we don't, we don't, we don't, we don't swear on the uh, podcast. Here's another Rob Krychek question for his son. What does the running back in football do when he's carrying the ball and is about to be tackled by a running back running right at him in close quarters? What's he supposed to do? Well, like, there's a difference between a good and a great running back. So the good one looks for, uh, looks for a place to get out of bounds and, and the great one, um, Looks for someone to hit, I guess, or something along those lines. Yeah, it's that mountain, <laughs> yeah. that mountain goat built, that mountain goat uh, mentality. You just put your head down, right. and go straight forward. Um, exactly. All right, now this is this is a stretch right here. I don't know if you're going to get this one. This is from the Rob Krychek file. What is Audubon hair? Audubon on a dog's behind. There you go. You got it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I think I think your dad still got some hair, but uh, when I was thinning, uh, he told me I, I had Audubon hair. Uh, <laughs> he used a different word there as well, but yeah, yeah. But, um, I'm on the team now, where you you just don't have any hair. All right, now A and M. This is an A and M question. Oh boy, what is Johnny Football's middle name? Ooh. His actual middle name, right? You're not not talking about. Um, I, you know, I don't know. I wouldn't know. No, you just you just give me an answer. I think your question might might help you with the answer. No, I'm not looking for an actual middle name. Johnny. Um, I mean, we just always call him Johnny. Johnny Football. Um, Actually, his middle you know. name is not so nice. I know he's a member of Washington. Oh. play. Was he there when you were there? He was a redshirt freshman when I was a senior. So actually, I um, I had met him a couple times. He, was, he it's kind of hard to believe, but he was a super shy kid um, when he came in, and um, he had a crush or was friends with some of the girls on the on the soccer team. And we were, um, you know, pretty close with them. Just all, all the athletics had shared a study hall and stuff. So we'd hang out with them, and we were <laughs> at a. Um, at a soccer party or something like that. One of the, my last years and, and Johnny was there, but he was kind of over in the corner and, and, uh, and super shy. It was kind of funny. So really nice kid. And, and, um, you know, nobody obviously knew anything about him or anything. And then, um, and then next, the year after that is when he, he kind of, um, you know, obviously had a, had a tremendous couple games and, and became, you know, the guy. And uh, it was funny to think back on that because he was, anything but shy after that but um but yeah so i just knew him a little bit and some of the guys that i was on the team with jackson withrow who's also still playing doubles now really at, at a really high level he um he's good buddies with johnny so he knew him a lot better than i did but i am um, i sure enjoyed watching him play play football that's for sure 
Jackson Withrow in Nebraska. When he was recruited, yeah. uh, Steve Denton, he came to uh, come down and video made and he spent a week with us. But the answer yep. is from a comic. I can't give the comic's name. I would, but I don't remember who said it, but it's pretty good. I'm sure the comic had a writer and it was during his pro career, but what's Johnny football's middle name is Johnny college football. <laughs> yeah. Not so, not so That'd nice. be a pretty good one. Not so, not so nice. <laughs> Here's a true or false um, question for you. Your college coach, Steve Denton, 1984, new world record on the serve, 138 miles an hour. It stood for 13 years. Is that true or false? You know, I know he had the ace record um, for speed. I actually don't know that one. I, I would say true, though, just because of how how big a serve was. But the actual record on that, I thought it was more for the number of aces in a row. But so I would say I would say true, though. No, the service yeah, it's true. Um, with number of aces, I looked it up. But uh, have to ask our fact checker to dig deeper. With I thought he had that that record. And it was twelve, and then Sam Query uh, broke it. At, Beat it right. Broke it at thirteen. But what I read on Query's uh, page was the record's ten. But um, when I worked oh, for, okay. when I when I worked for Braden. Um, Vic used to show Steve Denton serve twice a week to the the weekday group and then the weekend group. Uh, Steve was recently down here at the clay courts. I'm, I'm down in Boynton Beach and just you know just a few miles away from the Delray Beach Center. And um, you know Steve actually his mechanics remind me or Curios's mechanics remind me of Steve's. He's so loose and out in front, out to the right. I, I've got one last question for you here. Um, your former uh, doubles partner is a junior, longtime friend, Jameer Jenkins. Uh, you could pass on this as well, but I know that Serena is no longer working with uh, Patrick Mortagulu. I've mispronounced right. that name before as Money Gulu. But uh, with who paid Jameer Jenkins, Serena or Patrick Mortagulu? You can always say, I don't know. I would, you know, I, I don't know for sure, but um, I would say Serena because he's still, he's still with her. So when he was in, uh, when she was playing in DC this summer, uh, he was there and it's always good to catch up with him. But I mean, I would just assume that it was Serena because of that. But, um, you know, I, I wouldn't be able to know a hundred percent, but. I mean, obviously Kalamazoo is a big time, but with, that's a national tournament, yeah. international tournament. Um you guys were maybe 15, 16 where you got to the semis of the juniors. How old are you guys? Uh, Jameer? Yeah, we, in, in US Open, yeah, we, we finaled there. Uh, that was in, um, that would have been, oh, geez. I guess we were 17. Um, I believe it would have been 17, right? Um, because we went, that would have went to school, I guess, the next spring. Um, uh, actually you and Jameer, I know you came and did, we worked with us for a week on doubles, but yeah, because you, you were young, young enough to where you were, when you went back the next time, I mean, you still could play junior. So you did it. You weren't 18. Okay. So maybe it was 16. Yeah. They might've been. Yeah. Uh, okay. The, the beginning with us, you were seven years old. You were, you were on your way to the little Mo and we filmed your strokes and we said, <laughs> said, go to the little Mo and then come back. Don't, don't worry about your strokes until you get back from the little Mo. I tell people all the time, if you were to ask about Roger Federer's tennis at age seven or eight, 
And if you, you read, I mean, both parents were really, really involved. It was more the mom who became a volunteer coach. And, um, you know, she started at a very late age and became a very good player. But I think you could ask the parents more. I think um, your dad, Rob and Sherry, both so supportive. But your dad was the one who was uh, following, doing everything we recommended. Um, right. The original tennis mate. Your dad tells me he still has it, and it's he he could set it up tomorrow, but he has it somewhere in storage. What, yeah, he does definitely does. <laughs> what what is your memory from uh, practicing in the garage? Because we tell people all the time, set up your garage. Yep. No, I mean we hit. Um, I mean we hit a ton of balls on the tennis mate. Um, you know, my mom and I used to play mini tennis as well. Uh, before that time, um, a lot in the street, and I hit a lot of balls on the wall. Um, at a club in, in Brandon before, I think I was, um, was training over there with you, Steve. Um, but yeah, we put a lot of time in on the tennis mate and, um, hitting balls off cones and, and, and getting that good technical base. I think that's, um, you know, been, um, a strength of mine, um, since the beginning. So I'm you know, obviously extremely, uh, grateful for that. And, and, um, you know, I just remember a, a ton, a ton of reps. So <laughs> that's I for think, sure. I think it really helped that your parents were athletes. Um, you know, right. hitting off the cone, swinging the sock. Um, you know, your dad, I just remember, you know, the minivan, he had you listening to the tapes. Uh, right, yeah. I, I can remember, uh, you know, through, oh, I can't remember. There's an Irish name, the guy who had so much to do with Saddlebrook, where your dad set it up, where you went and got to watch Sampras practice. And there's so many things from, yep. we, we on our course, Tennis Intelligence, Applied, we show you, I think, at age eight and age 18, where uh, that's where people have to do the fundamental work. Um, the, um, but, you know, not so many years after that, um, I really liked the, the gentleman uh, from Morocco, Omar, who helped you out. Yeah, Omar, they mean it, yeah. I've been for, for many years there before um, IMG and, and then obviously going to college, but. Yeah, yeah he, he, um, he used to do this thing, like, if you were showing any negative body language, like, he was wiping off tears. Uh, the, <laughs> but, no, he was, you know, getting you up early in the morning, and, and you're, you're working off the court. What did your recollection yep. worth working with him? Yeah, I mean, it was great. We had, uh, yeah, like you said, I mean, he'd be there. He was, um, like my parents, he, he was very an early person. So, I mean, if we have, um, practice at eight, he's there at seven fifteen, And, um, so he used to come pick me up at, uh, our house in Brandon. And I think we'd even meet at like seven and he'd be there at literally like six Oh five and we'd just wait outside. And then, um, you know, so obviously I'd get up there a little bit early and we'd go to the gym first and we have, you know, an hour, hour and a half in the gym. And then, and then we go to the court and we sit for four hours and it was, uh, it was a great time. We had a bunch of fun. I mean, you know, it was really just, like I mentioned, the reps. I mean, we were in the gym for an hour at least. And it wasn't like, you know, it was like some unbelievably, um, you know, detailed workout program like IMG had uh, years later, um, where the, the trainers were the best in the world. And they had all of this figured out. It was more of us kind of, you know, doing the best we could with, with what we knew and, and just trying to get stronger, being on a treadmill a little bit, running, biking, doing different things. Um, you know, doing a lot of core stuff, doing machines that, you know, I didn't necessarily know too much about. I mean, I had some experience at the Palmer Academy there before that, but, um, you know, I, I wasn't a, a fitness um, expert by any means. So we were 
putting a lot of time in there and then we'd go to the court and, um, you know, we, I'd bring, you know, my lunchbox with me. So we'd have dates and, and snacks and raisins and this and that. And, and we'd practice for three to four hours and we'd do long, you know, long stretches before breaks, but then we'd take, you know, five minutes at a changeover and, and have, you know, have some snacks, refuel, and then, and then go again. And we'd stay out there for, for literally three, four hours at, at any park we, you know, we could find near our house or, or clubs, you know, all over Tampa, obviously. Um, but we put in that, that work, you know, every day, you know, whether a tournament was coming up or not. And I think, uh, you know, Omar had a great perspective on junior tennis. Um, you know, I think sometimes that can be lost uh, on the, on the parenting side, especially where, these tournaments seem like such a big deal and, you know, I've got a big event coming up, the super nationals or this or that, or whatever it may be, a sectional, the state tournament, um, you know, and, and in the grand, grand scheme of things, it's, it's pretty, pretty insignificant. Um, I would say, uh, you know, and, and I think we had a good, good grasp on that, on, on um, building for the future and just trying to become a better player and, and not over, over analyzing every match and, and taking every loss is devastating. I mean, that's also a very easy thing to do in tennis, which is a unique sport in that regard. Um, with how much you lose, but, um, I think he had a very good grasp on that. So he helped, you know, with my parents who maybe didn't know as well, um, how, you know, how non-important junior tennis was at some points, um, was able to give a good perspective on that. And I think it helped me in my transition into IMG and, and obviously switching over to ITF tournaments and, and then playing some teachers and stuff before college. Um, just kind of keeping a longer term perspective, which is, which is pretty hard to do as, as a junior. That's for sure. Well, I think also working with an immigrant, someone who uh, yeah, he's in a new country, you know, new language, trying to make a new way for himself. But he also, too, the yeah. emotion. Um, I always think of your dad as you know, being a very easygoing guy, but obviously, you know, he, if he needs to be intense, he can be intense. There was one time, because you, when you needed clay courts, you would come over to HCC because we had access to clay. And yeah, right. you um, would come over, and there was one time where uh, your dad was there. He, he wasn't, you know, he really did a very good job uh, letting other people coach. You know, being, you know, ideally, you know, have the player play, the parent, parent, the coach, coach. I mean, sure. it, it's obviously very difficult to coach your own kid. But there was a time where your dad wanted you videotaped, and Omar didn't want you to be videotaped. And I'm just standing there. It's like, well, I'll videotape him or I'll videotape him. And so anyway, the, the, the two boys uh, had a little bit of an argument and uh, Rob won the argument. <laughs> I guess I, in, in the end he was writing the check, but uh, no, I, w- I thought right. that was a very significant part of your junior career where you, you know, you weren't at an Academy, you weren't at a club you know, where the, your parents arranged where you, someone was you know, really, you know, and I think you would have been doing that on your own in many ways because you were always organized. But um, now I dealt so much with your father. I know he's super organized, that, but you were way ahead of your time as far as, you know, having the right snacks and showing up where right. it was a professional approach. It was it was very, very good. I know you've already mentioned IMG. I think you were 12. Um, you know, I, I remember your father, maybe I should keep this a secret, but I don't think so, is uh, I always tell people, always there's always somebody watching, but your dad, you might have been eight years old, and your dad would say that there were uh, there were scouts, there were Nike scouts in the stand. There's there were people here from <laughs> Prince and Fila, and, and you guys better behave and play well. And uh, 
<laughs> Actually, my son, Mikhail, um, from a political standpoint, uh, you know, he just, he still uh, has some Rob Krychak isms that he shares. But tell us about <laughs> going to Boletari's. I think that was a great setup for you because your parents are only an hour away in, in Brandon. You were, that, that you were born in Brandon and that's where the first years were, right? Yep, I grew up in Brandon, and um, yeah, IMG is just down the road, a, a little over an hour, hour 15, just a little bit too far um, down in Bradenton to drive every day. Um, so yeah, it worked out great. I was 13, 14, somewhere right around there, and um, was able to receive a scholarship to go down to IMG and, and um, you know, live there full-time, basically. So I'd, I'd live there during the week and stay, stay in the dorms, and then I'd come home on the weekend. So that was the the benefit of, um, of being close to home is I could come home on the weekends, but obviously, you know, the, the longer I was there, the more tournaments we played. So there wasn't as many, you know, weekends to do that, but, um, it worked out great, you know, fortunately being able to be homeschooled, um, you know, by Laurel Springs and it, it worked out with our schedule wise, but yeah, IMG was, um, was an interesting experience. I think, uh, I don't think it would work for everybody. Um, it takes a unique, a unique guy. I think, it's, it, it was all tennis all the time. And we were, we were in the gym at, at seven, um, you know, which I was a bit used to, um, with Omar, which was a, a benefit for sure. But, um, you know, my dad always, you know, mentioned, you know, when, when they ask, uh, jump, you say how high. And, and I think that translated well into that environment. I mean, with red and, and Nick obviously coming out quite a bit as well, that they, they were very tough guys, um, very emotional and, and fired up and, and, you know, screaming all the time. So, I fit in pretty well to that environment. I liked it. I, I worked hard. It was tennis all the time. We were in the gym, practice, you know, quick lunch, uh, back up practice, and then in the gym again for a full fitness session. And then, you know, so you're going seven to six, um, pretty nonstop. Um, and then big dinner. And then you're trying to do some school in the evening, which obviously was difficult when you're as tired as you were. But, um, you know, they did a great job of making it matches almost every day. We played matches every afternoon and there was a, you were held accountable. You know, there's a ladder system type setup where, um, you know, no matter who you're playing or where, what court you're playing, it mattered. Um, so you were always playing different people from everywhere and, um, you know, older, younger, different styles of play. Um, they cheated that, you know, a lot of situations like that where, where it made you a better player, um, better competitor, I think is, is really what they, their strength was there. So I think I, I learned a lot there physically. I think in, on the, on the fitness side, they had a very good, a professional setup um, with um, prehab routines. Um, you know, obviously, if you got injured, rehab. They had the top-notch facilities for injury um, recovery. But I think a lot of the injury prevention stuff really gave me a good base. Um, you know, going along obviously with having good technique from a young age, and I think that's um, one of the more important things you can do uh, to prevent injuries later on. So I was fortunate with that. Um, you know, a lot of the trainers there were on us all the time to be professional and, and do all the extra stuff, you know, across the T's, dot the I's. And, and I think that gave me a very good base where I was able to stay healthy. I mean, once you get to a certain point in your career, um, you know, a big, por a big part of it is, is staying healthy and being able to compete. I mean, if you can keep your level at a certain standard and, and just stay healthy and play, um, the results come as long as you focus on the right things. It's just kind of being able to go out there. I mean, there's a lot of players that, um, you know, big time players that um, have the talent and they're there and, you know, but injuries keep sidelining, sidelining them. And, and that's, um, you know, a big part of the game. So I thought IMG was extremely good for that. And, um, you know, and also just on the competitive front, definitely. With 
So many questions, so many stories. Now you were there until you went to A&M as a base, right? Right. Yep. For about then, uh, then, three and a half years. And then off and on, uh, you use that while you, once you started your pro career, you still went back. I did. Yeah, I did. Yeah. I came back after school for, um, for a bit. I was at Saddlebrook, um, initially after school, actually in, in Tampa for, uh, probably a year and a half or so. And then went down to back to IMG for a year. And, and I always, you know, even when I was in school, um, I would do my off seasons usually in, in at IMG, you know, for a couple of weeks and obviously kept a very good relationship with those guys and, and love it down there. So it's, you know, I, I, um, I was down there quite a bit, but yeah, I had about another full year, um, after college that I was back at IMG and, and then kind of moved on from there. But Spent plenty of time in Bradenton, that's for sure. <laughs> you know, you've been on the tour for a long time now. The Nick Ball, Terry, IMG alumni is impressive. Um, you find yourself all the time running into people from Ball Terry's. Yeah, definitely. I mean, they have, uh, you know, the best of the best for sure. A, a lot of amazing players and coaches. And um, just now, I mean, nowadays with how big the academy's gotten, it's funny that um, even in other sports, so even if you're around big time football programs like AM, obviously, or, or other schools like that, the, the guys will be going down to IMG, you know, to train for the draft or things like they've got, um, I don't know, seven or eight sports now down there, and the football setup is, is amazing. So the, the gyms and the facilities now are, are really uh, top notch. It's, it's significantly grown since I was there, even. So, oh, no, it's wow, it's so impressive. I've, um, you know, I've been there for years and years. I remember when it wasn't, it was at the Colony in Sarasota. Um, I went to observe Nick in 1979, and it's uh, how you slay the dragon. And I was just watching, and he started yelling at me, what are you doing? <laughs> and with uh, he came over, and he had worked at All-American Sports, in fact, uh, with an investor, he started All American Sports. It's interesting. Harry Hopman was in charge of the juniors. Nick was in charge of the adults. So he comes over and he's screaming at me. And he said, "What are you doing here?" I said, "Well, a mutual friend of ours told me you're the best tennis teacher in the world, and I need to watch you." And I told him it was Ronnie Meyer, who, you know, a fifth grade teacher from Wisconsin. He ran uh, the summer camp at Amherst uh, College in Massachusetts. He's right there, I mean, slay the dragon. He put his arm around me, Stevie, my boy, and I, I was in. I'm here to watch the best. But Paul Terry, yeah, he created the toughest playground in tennis. It, it, um, fantastic. Um, I should have talked to Harold Solomon today, top five player in the world. I was told that um, some he had heard that Nick was in the hospital. I hope he's all right. I mean, I hope he can make it to 100 and beyond. Yeah. Yeah, I think he's 91 now. I think he was doing better. Um, I, I did see some some posts of some people visiting him, and he, he seemed in pretty good spirits. So I'm hoping hoping he's doing okay. With um, last time I heard Nick speak at a coaching conference, someone raised their hand and said, "What keeps you going?" He said, "Alimony." Uh, <laughs> yeah, a guy like that, you talk about confidence. Um, he was um, married eight times, but only to seven seven women. So he convinced one woman, "Hey, marry me again." Marry me again, so you got to love that. With tell us more about Red. Um, I, I, my visual on Red is you guys show up at your courts. You're maybe in this group of two courts or four courts, and if you don't, somebody doesn't have their band, their skip rope, their running shoes, they don't have their water jug. 
everybody's got to run around the facility and the facility's got larger and larger and he gets on his old women's bicycle, yells at somebody else, <laughs> somebody, yep. yells at somebody else to get on a golf cart and they're going to make sure that no one cheats. Um, that guy, yeah, he was, he's, uh, a, he's a grizzly bear. Tell us a little bit about Red. He's a great guy. I mean, he, he's a grizzly bear on the outside and he's, he's actually a, a very, very nice guy. Obviously, as I got older, I got to know him a little bit better. And, uh, I mean, just a, a super nice guy, um, when he gets away from it, he, he puts on this face that's, um, that's awesome. I mean, it really is, it's enjoyable to watch. I mean, if you're there, it's, it's, it's quite entertaining, but as a player, uh, especially when you're 15, it, it wasn't as entertaining. It's definitely, it definitely made you pay attention and focus on the details and, and be there on time and, and not forget anything. And, um, you know, you said, yes, sir. And looked him in the eye, shook his hand firm. I mean, it, he was very, um, you know, strict in that regard um I, you know he wasn't too um you know i wouldn't say really specific obviously in tennis teaching i mean in this in that kind of um you know technique and things like that he, even strategy as much he was just very you know he, he'd get you hitting a ton of balls and he had some tips here and there but um he, he kind of let some of the other coaches do do more of the specific stuff but um yeah he would just be screaming and hitting and nick would come out and be yelling at him and he'd yell back at nick and Nick would bring out croissants and, and red would freak out and toss the tray and, you know, what are you making these guys soft? And I mean, he would do all kinds of stuff that, you know, if, if you're a, uh, you know, someone there watching or something, you thought it was, it was hilarious, but man, when we were in it at the moment, we were, we were pretty quiet. That's for sure. Okay. You know, and if you lost, <laughs> but, no, no, go ahead. Yeah. I would say if you lost a match or something and, and, you know, maybe threw your racket or, or, you know, broke your racket, which is way worse than, um, he would, he would get on you for a couple of days and you'd be running and, you know, even, even washing dishes if you did the wrong thing. And, um, you know, then you'd be practicing with, um, a lot of times he'd make us practice with, with some of the, the women pros that were there. Um, you know, a sort of, a sort of punishment for us if we lost and after shouldn't have lost or, or behaved poorly. Um, you know, and we obviously were playing matches every day and, and you're, you know, that environment just makes you super competitive. So you, um, you know, you don't want to lose anything and obviously tensions were high. So there was quite a bit of frustration and, and, um, you know, it just kind of all fed itself. And I think it makes you a, a tougher, tougher competitor. You know, like I said, I think, um, you know, just playing that many matches and getting that much experience, it kind of like, um, just super accelerates your experience curve there. Um, because you're playing so many more matches than, than a normal junior, you know, that may be playing a tournament every other weekend or whatever it may be. And you don't, you don't play as much this, you know, in that environment, we were literally playing matches every day. And, um, you know, it felt like sometimes the, when you got to go to the tournament, that was the, that was the vacation a little bit, you know, you kind of get to go, go there and relax and you don't get yelled at. And, and, uh, you know, you can sleep, sleep in a little bit. It was, it was a, a strange environment, but, but a very good one. I mean, for the right, um, the right personality that really liked tennis and, and wanted to improve. Um, I think it, it was a phenomenal environment. With Red, speaking of Bears, uh, Bear Bryant called all his assistants in one time and said, I'm tired of being the old only grizzly bear here. Everybody else is a teddy bear. And he goes, we got to flip it. I'm going to be the teddy bear and else everybody else is going to be the grizzly bear. But Nick Balteri at one point um, in, in the back room talking to his coaches, he just told him, I'm going to be screaming at you because that fear factor and like everybody's going to be like on their toes and brains, right. brain switched on. 
talking about red can lead into uh, Tommy Haas. So Tommy Haas, he went there, I think, when he was nine, was a little homesick, but by the time he was 10, give or take, he was, he was back there. And he, like you, even more so, I think he probably spent more years than you there. Um, yeah. But I've seen, you know, you know, and again, I'm not like you. I have only was there now and then for tournaments and such. Um, it used to be an open door. Now, I last time I was there, you you have to have uh, credentials pretty much to get in. They're running it differently. But it used to be you just walk yeah. walk in and observe. But Red and Tommy, they used to yell at each other. And, and Haas, was, Haas got good enough where when he was a pro, you know, he goes, you're fired. Those yeah, he's firing multiple times a day. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Multiple times a day. Tommy Haas. I, yeah, but- I when I go to Balteri, it's just like okay, I've taken a group of juniors. There's so many. There were so many tournaments there. I've seen my juniors play, and it's like, well, there's a few other things I could watch while I'm here. There's so many things. It's like a smorgasbord of tennis. But how about Tommy Haas in basketball? Did you spend much time watching him play basketball, or did you play any pick? Yeah. Up you know, I didn't play much with Tommy. To be honest, I was I was a bit uh, afraid of him. I just recently started speaking a little bit, you know, more with him. Uh, now he's the tournament director at Indian Wells. But um, when I was at IMG, I, I witnessed several of those elopes, elopes between him and Red, obviously. And um, I've been kicked off the court by him a couple times, um, not for bad behavior, but for for missing too many balls. Um, they, they were in a tight ship there. If you if you missed. Um, two in a row so if you missed two before Tommy missed one you were kicked out it was just no questions asked and um and red had a way of before practice you know you would think that the worst thing you could say to someone before something like that is hey you know you, you better not miss a ball because he's going to get very angry and uh so he'd always make sure he told us that before we started and um and when you miss you know after the first five minutes you miss one you get very nervous because Tommy I mean, you'd go through 30 minutes warming up down the middle and Tommy would not miss one ball. I mean, it was actually amazing how, how clean he hits. I, I still haven't seen anyone that hits cleaner than him, um, you know, just all the time. I mean, it's, it's wild. Yeah, but no, yeah, it's, Amazing technique. It's, so clean. Cleans, insane. Yeah. Cleans the right word. Efficient. Least amount of moving parts. Exactly. Least amount of muscle recruitment. With uh, Say that again, though. So um, for our listeners, if, if you miss two, how'd that go? Yeah. Well, yeah. So if you, if you, you know, missed a shot and, um, and then you, he feeds it back in and you are in the next rally, if you miss again before he misses, like if, if he were to miss, you know, 10 shots later, top of the net or whatever, then you're, you're a little bit, you can kind of take a breath, you know, but if you miss two in a row, you're, you're gone. So you're, let <laughs> me just say next and, uh, and you're, you're out of there. So you're very, very nervous, but, but at the same time, very focused. Uh, that's to say the least. But, um, yeah, there was several times where we'd be playing baseline games or something like that. And, you know, that's if you get past the, the danger zone in the warmup. Um, and, uh, and he'd win a couple points, you know, and, and Tommy didn't like it. He would just obliterate some rackets. And that's when, when Red and him would get going at it. And, and it was, um, it was definitely something to be seen. But, um, yeah, we had plenty of those practices. But man, the guy, he, he was intense and, and, um, worked hard. You know, like you said, clean. I've never seen a guy hit the ball um, just just so clean all the time. I mean, he'd take a week off and he'd be doing the same thing. It's crazy. No, number, it really is number, number two in the world is too bad. He, I mean, he had that shoulder operation. He had it twice right. in uh, one year. I do think his 
as clean as he hit the ball, though, I mean, he had the toss like Edberg and Rafter. He had the toss too far over his head. Right. Uh, just throw that in there as a, an opinion. It's good to have an opinion once in a while. With, um, <laughs> but Tommy Haas, um, your dad, remember your dad told me one time where, you know, you know, obviously your dad spent more time, you know, picking you up, dropping you off perhaps than your mom. Or, or maybe I was around Rob more than Sherry. But sure. Rob goes, you know, and you got, you just you go, yeah, that's pretty cool. You know, Tommy Haas is saying hello. Hey, Austin, how you doing? But yeah, you were, our listeners have to realize that you were, you know, 12, 13, 14, 15. So you were shy and like, you know, it wasn't, oh, it wasn't like you're going to sit out and, and have a conversation with the guys two in the world. <laughs> Definitely not. <no. laughs> with, um, Nisha Corey is a good friend of yours. What's going on with him? Yeah. I mean, you know, he's been, you know, kind of unfortunate with, um, just unlucky, I guess, with a lot of injuries and, yeah, I'm not sure. You know, it's been a little bit since I've talked with him. Obviously, he hasn't been playing too much. Um, but yeah, we we lived together for for pretty much the whole time for about three years. And when I was there, and um, you know, kind of came up, he was obviously uh, still playing juniors and, and some futures at that time. And and um, he's also you know a shy guy. He's a funny guy. He, he did a very good job of um, he he speaks English great, um, and he actually spoke pretty well um even when he was younger but he used to use that as an excuse not to have to talk that much to to everybody and, and do a lot of interviews and stuff so he he was a very smart selective shy um um guy but yeah we had some great times at IMG and obviously he's an unbelievable player I've got to play him a couple times in singles when he was um, at his peak and and um you know had a, had a couple looks at him but um I mean the guy is just an incredible athlete backhands uh, world class and yeah, it's not many guys that are have the speed that he has. That's that's um, no question. With uh, yeah, I remember you, it was a televised match where you went three sets. Uh, obviously, you grew up with the yep. guy, so you you had no off factor, right? I mean, yeah, that does help. That helps a lot, um, and that's one of the other big benefits of being at IMG and, and practicing with those guys and being around the best. I mean, you you kind of um, you know you don't ever necessarily lose that um, depending on the court you're playing on, but um, it does give you some familiarity when you're out there and, and it does make a big difference. Um, especially in some of the medium tournaments, you know, um, where I played K in Memphis where, you know, it was a stadium court, but, um, you know, I was a good bit more nervous when I played him the next year, uh, on market court arena in Australia with the roof closed. Um, you know, you're, you're a little bit more nervous in that situation, definitely. But, um, but it does, it does help a lot to take the all factor away is just to be around, be around the best and, and kind of, get used to the level a little bit. So I run on a, on a tour. Have you met Andy Fitzell? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. So Andy did this, he did this commercial with Roger Fetter and, you know, it basically takes a full day to shoot a commercial. And sure. I, um, I think the listeners could look it up. Uh, the line Roger is, it was for a car and he's, well, my pick me up truck, my pick me up <laughs> truck. And anyway, so he's wearing a mustache. If there's a disguise and, People can find it on YouTube. So they're just sitting around and um, Roger said to Andy, he goes, Hey, I can tell you've played tennis because they, they hit during the commercial. And, and he said, what do you do? And he said, well, I spent a lot of time with Vic Braden and we study technique and you know, who's, you know, what's the most efficient way to hit a tennis ball. And Roger said, Roger asked Andy, um, who's the most efficient pro player today? And then Andy said, well, you tell me. And his guess was Nishikori, which I thought was interesting. Um, it was just based on that beautiful backhand of his. But right. He was really fast, though. Correct. 
speed. Oh, it was, yeah, wildly fast. I mean, the point was never over. That was one of the hardest things I'm playing him. I mean, yeah, I, I still don't think I played. I mean, uh, Demon R actually, Alex is, is extremely fast as well. Um, we just played him a couple of weeks ago in Cincinnati, but, um, but K is, yeah. I mean, in singles, it's, it's, he's the fastest guy I played. I would, I would say. Um, this is a story I, I say, I tell people, you know, money can't buy, you know, they can't buy this type of experience. Is your dad, sure. did your dad had you up in Tampa and we're filming you when you're talking about, you know, on the return, you can take it like a tabletop sometimes. And this is more in singles. It's tough to play a tabletop return because the person's going to poach. But in other words, like a volley with an added follow through linear pattern. Right. And uh, so one day you were on a, you're up at our place, maybe on a Sunday and you go, you go back. Cause if you didn't have a tournament, you were taking Sundays off, but then you go back and you're playing against, you're practicing and playing against Karlovic. Um, what's it like to return serve against? I mean, I know you spent even time when you were with staying with us and you were a pro with, uh, with Isner. Yeah. I mean, exactly. Go, go ahead. Yeah, no, that he's, his serve is incredible. I, I was, fortunate enough to to beat him actually in a couple of tournaments there too which was pretty cool but um i mean yeah it's it's just coming from such a different angle um you know that's really what gets you it's not necessarily the speed i mean there's obviously some guys you know practicing some with andy roddick uh, back in the day um you know his serve is coming way faster but those guys just can produce angles i mean they can hit flat serves in all the spots i mean isner is the same you just you almost get to the point where you try to take away two or three spots you know and and um kind of think through what they might be wanting to do. But um, yeah, I mean, those short returns, I mean, actually taking, taking the returns early, sometimes it's almost easier on Karlovich um, and John too, it's it return the first serve than the second. I mean, the second gets up so high. Yeah. I was going um, to ask about that. I remember watching Karlovic again. I've seen Isner play in practice quite a bit, but yeah, the second, it's like, guys, why don't you just hit two second serves? Because it's bouncing as high as the fence. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, I mean, obviously, in the first year, they want the, the you know the quick reward of an ace. But um, if you're able to get your racket on it, it's, it's arguably you know considerably easier to return the, the first than the second. Max Mirny is a little bit older, but he was there when you were there, right? He was, yeah, yeah. I love practicing with Max. He's um, I mean, another guy that's just a great role model, uh, the most professional. I think his reputation, um, especially on the doubles tour at the end, is he was just. Uh, as professional as it gets. I mean, the guy, he literally did everything the right way and, and um, you know, had an unbelievable career, singles and doubles, um, you know, winning many slams. And I think he was, he was, uh, where did he get to in singles? He was in the top 15 maybe, or even no, a little bit higher than that? No, he was up there. Or not quite. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember. But an unbelievable guy. No, he, um, yeah, I, I don't know if he was top 10, but uh, he was. Close, uh, yeah. Close, yeah, with. No, the the alumni. Um, the going back to the intensity, the I, you know, obviously you're an insider for myself to be an outsider. The killer bee or the queen bee uh, theory that the, the best player gets the first court. So if Tommy Haas or Maria Shova, Sharapova come out and you're up front, uh, you got to leave the court and they just take your court. Is that true? Yeah, that's definitely true. Yeah, I mean Nick had his court up front and. Um, you know, you rarely got to practice there. If you if you came back for some extras, maybe late, you know, five, six o'clock when everyone was kind of finished, then you might get to hit up there. 
Um, but yeah, you, you would, it would, yeah, literally in off season, it would be from the top court down and it would just basically go by ranking or, you know, not necessarily to the spot, but I mean, you know, prestige carried a little weight there too. So, you know, all those guys that have won slams or done really well in slams, you know, they always had the front couple courts and then you get shipped down to the kind of the bottom unless you were hitting with one of them. So it was, you know, motivation, of course, to, to play well and, and get a chance to hit with those guys, um, you know, and just kind of see where their level matches up to yours. And, and obviously that exposes some of your weaknesses and what you can improve. So during, during your tenure there, did they still have that club that had 21 courts? It was not at the main site or did they sell that? By they, um, well, we had, I guess there was, um, I don't know the exact number. There was probably 30 courts. So they had all those hard courts, you know, and then they had the indoor center and they had some green clay at the back. And then they were just building. I think when I first got there, they didn't have across the bridge. It was like a little swamp area. And then on the other side of that, which is now where they have an unbelievable facility and locker rooms and more apartments and baseball center and golf, everything. But they added some course on that side, um, kind of of the swamp. And there was, there was only at that time, I think only like six clay courts. There were a bit better clay courts, but I think they've added even a few more now, but, that was the only setup that, that I knew there. Yeah, well, he was first at the colony, then bef- before they bought all of the land with the orange groves and the new facility, mm-hmm. the, the campus they have now, they had, they did have a club with 21 courts. I think at one point, okay. I, I, it was like 77 or 95, where you just hear the coaches, you know, we're, wow. send, we're sending you to court 78, where they just, we're going <laughs> to put you on the last court. But I do think that it had so much to do with the environment where, you know, drill work in the morning, you play matches. And if, if you were to lose, you're going to go down in the, you, you could, you can get lower, you could be placed in a lower group, correct? Yeah, definitely. It was a, you know, everything counted. Um, you know, obviously there were some guys that, you know, really were the focus point of a top group, but, um, yeah, it was all up for grabs. I mean, if you started beating a bunch of guys, um, you were going to move up and maybe get more time with Nick as well. And, um, and if you lost, yeah, you were, you were headed the other way and, and yeah, you just be bumped down the groups and yeah, you know, I, I, and it happened to a lot, a lot of guys. Yeah. I know Ty Tucker's a fan of yours. You, uh, were with Chase Buchanan you're practicing with Ohio state team in the yeah. summer and Ty calls me up and goes, this kid, great check. He's got the best return <laughs> on the seat. And uh, with, uh, but what we say with the tie is there's no such thing as a practice match. And I think that comes from Boletari is that there's so many positives to that. I mean, I, you know, I think it's pet peeve number 972 and a kid, I'm working on my game. You can work on, <laughs> work on your game and compete at the same time. I do realize that, you know, some kids, if they're just making all these changes, it's good to take a little bit of a timeout. Sure. When you were really sure. young, um, you're there and you were asked to be a sparring partner with the girls, I think that the top girls in the world used to go Billy Mays or Larry Godfrey. Billy Mays with Billie Jean King, Larry Godfrey with Chrissy Everett. I mean, I remember watching Sharapova practice so many times with 16-year-old boys. Because yep, the, the 18 year old boys were a little bit too strong. I mean, last week or two weeks ago, Dave Secker from NC State said on our podcast that I asked about, does, uh, you know, what would happen if the, the player who's the lowest on the men's team played the gal who was top on the women's team. And he said, oh, I, they could have some good ground games, but once you bring the serve into it, but you know, tell us, did you, I know you, you hit with Serena as a sparring partner, help. Right. How about with Sharapova and others? 
Yep. Yeah, we hit. I mean, yeah, Maria was there, and and um, Nicole Vadasova was top ten uh, during that period there. She was a really good player. Um, and then Serena, obviously, Venus was in and out. Um, a bunch of girls players um, that I'm maybe blanking on right now, but yeah, like I mentioned, kind of jokingly, but they, you know, a lot of times if you, uh, we just had so many guys to pick from. Obviously, we had a huge group. Um, a lot of times, the guys that would misbehave or break a racket or whatever um, would would have to hit with um would have to hit with one of the pro girls the next morning, and um, so that kind of you know happened a few times to me like everybody else. But um, it was cool to hit with them, um, hit with some of the, the best players in the world. And I mean, yeah, like, like you said, I mean, obviously um, some of the girls now hit just you know great balls from the ground. Um, but you know, I mean, there's some varietal things that that men's tennis makes tough. If you start slicing some, and, and when serves come into play, it does make it a bit different, um, you know, for them. So it's, uh, you know, we didn't play that many um, points. I would say it was more kind of hitting and, and doing specific stuff. You know, you were just kind of a hitting partner for that practice since you were kind of in trouble, I guess. <laughs> I, I, but I do think also for uh, men to hit with women is very good for for working on just being consistent. Yeah, I don't think it's, it's necessarily bad. I mean, you know, I you know, probably haven't done it as much either, but you know, I, I joke sometimes that some of the best practices I have rhythm wise, um, to be to be honest, um, was when I hit with um Jessica Pagula who I'm playing with in, in New York, uh, in mixed doubles and uh when I warm up with her and then um I had our, um, my coach for a little bit, Stephen Armitage was with the USTA and um we hit I hit with his wife, uh, Allison Risk. Yeah. Um, out at um, Indian Wells a few years ago, and um, and I still think that was probably the best rhythm hit I've had in in the last five years. I mean, it was it was a pretty good one. So yeah, I mean, I think obviously it's uh, you know, I mean, uh, some guys have different opinions on that, but um, you know, and points and stuff is different. I mean, obviously the serving is a bit different, um, but for just hitting, I think it's uh, a great way to get a rhythm, and and um, if you're trying to work on something specific, there's there's nothing wrong with that at all. And Krychik, if I get a chance to ask Allison Risk, uh, she's from Pittsburgh. I'm going to ask her uh, who's who's, yeah. who's the captain of the Pittsburgh Penguins. Sydney, Sydney <laughs> she'll Crockett probably know. And black, black, yeah. black and gold is the answer. Uh, with with uh, Agassi, you spent time with Agassi and Gil Reyes. Is that right? I did. Yeah, that was a was an awesome experience for sure. Tell us about that. Yeah, so I I was out there. Um, at uh, as I just mentioned, Steve with Stephen Armitage out at um, Carson on the West Coast in LA, um, training at the USTA Center there a little bit after I'd moved from Florida. And um, you know, Stephen, uh, the USTA was shifting some things around, um, which happens quite a bit. And, and they moved Stephen down to Lake Nona, which is the new facility in Orlando. Um, so I was kind of just out there in LA. Um, and I've been working with Stephen for the past year there, and um, Stephen had a great thing going with we had. Gosh, we had 10 or 12 guys out there kind of all working together and everybody in the same year hit their career high. So it was really a, an unbelievable setup we had, but they relocated him. And then, um, I was kind of there, you know, not necessarily working with a coach specifically. So I was, you know, obviously paying the, the extremely high cost of living that, that requires out there and, and, um, for no, you know, really good reason uh, for my tennis or anything. And, um, so Gil Reyes had come out to a camp at uh, Carson. And um, was just kind of, you know, watching from a distance uh, some of the guys and how everyone was conducting their workouts and practices and so forth. And um, and Gil, after we all finished up, Gil kind of just came up and introduced himself. And, you know, obviously, obviously I knew who he was um, really well. And um, he was like, hey, you know, you should 
come out to Vegas sometime and, and uh, we'd love to have you out there and just work out a little bit. It'd be fun to, you know, meet Andre and stuff. And I was like, yeah, I mean, I'd love that. You know, so we obviously I set that up as soon as I could and um, went out there to Vegas and, and, um, and actually, I mean, still now I, I absolutely love Vegas. I think um, it's a beautiful city. I mean, obviously the strip has everything you can imagine restaurant wise and entertainment wise, but outside the strip. So to the West and Henderson and, um, just a really, really nice city. It kind of gives you like a Palm Springs vibe. And, um, so I, I enjoyed my time out there. I was there for about eight months, to be honest. Uh, we were, you know, when I, I was still kind of living in LA, but as soon as I'd get home, I'd, I'd rent a car and, and drive over a few hours to Vegas and, and kind of be there most of the time and, um, you know, work out with Gil every day. And then Andre, when he was in town, um, he would come out and, and hit some balls and, and we'd talk and hang out in the gym. And it was, it was really, uh, it was surreal to be honest. I, I still, I don't know if I fully, you know, um, has sunk in, you know, all the, the great lessons and, and just, just being around those guys and, um, you know, how high of a standard they hold themselves to and how hard they work. And I mean, Andre's, you know, busier than ever with all his, his endeavors off the court. Um, but to take the time to help me out, I mean, you know, that he obviously didn't have to do that at all. Um, it was pretty cool. So, I mean, just to be, you know, I remember the first couple of practices with Andre, we were working on something on my serve and, and um, you know, bounce the ball and, and um, look up and, and Andre's over there, you know, getting ready to return. And then he's still hitting the ball huge. And uh, it was just, yeah, it was, it was incredible. I had to kind of, you know, pinch myself there <laughs> serving to Andre. I guess he obviously growing up and watching him and Sampras and, um, you know, it was, it was pretty cool. So he, he gave some invaluable lessons and, and uh, just being around those guys helped me become a better, uh, not just a better player, but a better person, I think. And, um, you know, and, um, and at the end there, you know, they obviously were super busy with a lot of things, but we were, were really close actually to moving out to Vegas, um, at that point in time. And it just with, you know, circumstances with my wife now and stuff, we, we ended up moving back to, um, to Texas and, um, and, uh, worked out great. But, um, yeah, I spent a lot of time there and still, still feel like Vegas is, uh, was home there for a little while. It was great. With Gil Reyes, for our listeners, um, yeah, I would hope that our listeners of Tennis Podcast know Andre Agassi, but Gil Reyes, uh, <laughs> the fittest coach, and, you know, and Andre gives him so much, so much uh, credit for his career. So they helped you both on-court, off-court. Uh, tell us yeah. a little bit about, I mean, about being in the gym with Gil Reyes. Yeah, Gil's, I've, I haven't met many people in my life um, that would make you want to run through a wall uh, like Gil does. I mean, he would, you'd do anything for him. Um, you know, he gives you the, the feeling right away that he'd do anything for you. And yeah, it was, it was, um, it was surreal, really. He just um, was an unbelievable guy. He had some, some pretty cool beliefs, um, you know, in training. And, and obviously he's got his uh, unique machines there that, um, you know, kind of reduce the risk of injury um, with some heavy weights. So, um, you know, we were, we were full, full go on that stuff. And, and I was able to, you know, gain some weight and strength out there and, um, and, uh, you know, was playing well. It was, uh, you know, a little different training out there in Vegas and in a bit of altitude, but, um, it was great. I mean, yeah, the gym was, um, every day I enjoyed, I soaked up every minute of being out there. And, and, uh, sometimes I think the, you know, even the talks at lunch and dinner were, were just as valuable as, um, as the, the workouts themselves. I mean, I could see how, Andre would, would have so much respect for him. He's such a great guy. And, um, you know, I mean, just such a great perspective on life and, um, you know, and the grind that, that tennis and I guess all professional sports are, but specifically tennis, it's, um, he was a great person to be around. No, you have so many amazing experiences. We 
talk a little bit about the finances and playing pro tennis and how difficult that is. I can remember uh, with uh, suggesting to your father, I said, well, I've trained all these tennis teachers really around the world, but all over the United States. And your son was number one in the juniors. He won Kalamazoo. And, you know, when there is a free weekend is to send him off to, uh, to do a clinic, uh, to talk to parents. It's, it's right. great. We're certainly touching upon some of those things in this uh, podcast. Um, I had, I had down as a question, you've already used that expression. Uh, you pinch yourself. I mean, that ask you, and granted, I worked with you some when you were in college, some when you're on the pro tour, but you know, it's like when you walk, walk, walk into Wimbledon, you, you pinch yourself, you know, because you know, now, now, yeah, you now, do. now you're there. Yeah. I mean, go ahead. Yeah, no, you, you definitely do. Wimbledon has a unique uh, mystique to it. And, um, yeah, it's really one of those things that's hard to explain um, until you're there, you know, and a lot of times on, you know, on TV, you kind of have this, uh, you know, obviously as a kid, I was watching all the Grand Slams and big tournaments on TV and you have this idea of what, you know, the U.S. Open is going to look like or Wimbledon is going to look like or Australia, you know, the tournaments, French Open, obviously, you just have an idea of what the site kind of looks like from what they show on TV and stuff. And it's always so different. Um you know, I mean, completely different, but, um, Wimbledon is one of those ones where, um, even now, I mean, even this year when you're walking around the first couple of days before the crowd gets there and stuff, and it's just, uh, it's just a phenomenal setup. I mean, the, the grass looks like carpet. Um, it's, it's extremely quiet. There's no advertisements anywhere. I mean, it's just a kind of a surreal experience being there. It's pretty, pretty cool to be able to go out there and, and compete and, and play a sport, you know? No, that's amazing. Let's back up a little bit. College, your college experience. I know uh, when you were a young kid, you were set on going to Florida. You love Florida. Um, yeah. I, I can remember the meetings uh, when you had, I think it was just A&M in Florida. I don't think there was others, but I remember uh, your dad um, and your mom. We had meetings at HCC, Hillsborough Community College, where I was based out of. Uh, tell us a little bit about Steve Denton, um, Bobby McKinley. My word, you've so many experiences. Yeah. There. But what was it like going to A and M? You went early. Um, I did. You, yep. is it, you went after you completed three years of high school, basically. Tell us about going to A and M. Yeah, I did. I mean, obviously, the, the homeschooling thing at, at IMG was was difficult with how much we were practicing and stuff. But at the same time, it actually gave me flexibility to to get a little bit ahead and you know, you kind of work at your own pace. So you could, if you needed to miss a couple of weeks for, for a tournament, you could get ahead and, and be okay with that. So, um, yeah, I finished early and then, um, uh, was obviously, uh, or not obviously, but was a Gators, a huge Gators fan growing up in Tampa, um, my whole life and I still have some Gator stuff hidden away somewhere, I'm sure. But, um, yeah, I had everything. My bedroom was full, uh, orange and blue. And, and I loved, uh, you know, football, Danny Warfel when they won the 96 and they won and, and, uh, Steve Spurrier, and yeah, I just was a huge Gators fan. So I was always, if I was going to go to school, I was going to go there. Um, and uh, and then last minute, uh, Coach Denton and Coach McKinley convinced me to just come on a recruiting trip out to A&M and, and, um, and College Station. And I actually had only been to College Station one time for an ITF tournament um, a year or two years before that. And, and I really wasn't a fan at all, to be honest. Um, so it was kind of funny. So I, I decided to go and... and um, and, uh, you know, I just, I, I fell in love with the, with the university that I, I thought the team was a bit more focused on, um, focused on improving and, and being a better tennis players. I thought the organization at the university was a, was a bit better. There's more traditions and, 
Um, and then mostly I think Kush, um, Steve and Bob were just, you know, they'd been in every position on the pro tour that, you know, in grand slam finals, um, winning grand slams and doubles of being, you know, top five in the world. And, um, every position that I wanted to be in in my career, they had already done. So I thought that I could learn a tremendous amount from them and, um, you know, kind of last minute decided to, to move out there and, um, had a phenomenal experience at AM. I mean, um, we still spend a lot of time there and try to go to a couple of football games a year if we can. But, um, yeah, we, uh, yeah, we, we truly have become, uh, you know, once an Aggie, always an Aggie is what they say. And, and that, um, is a hundred percent true. So I had a great experience out there and I think Steve and Bob were, were, um, a huge help to my tennis, um, in so many ways, but, um, you know, they were tremendous coaches. One thing going, going early, um, you had played 25 futures. You're, you're, you know, you had a scholarship at Voluntary's, but uh, it was your, right. par- your your parents' nickel that, uh, as far as getting to tournaments. I can remember your yep, dad, yep. dad. Your dad, I think there was one point in, where he didn't have one of those big motor homes. And so he came, <laughs> came over to ask me a question, and he said, you think I should get a motor home? I said, no, I think your kid's too good. I think, you know, you can't drive that motor home across the Atlantic. I don't think you should get, I don't think you should get a motorhome. So what he did is he got a motorhome. I said, come on, cry, come on, cry, child. But my recommendation, I can remember at one point going, um, you know, you go your game, you go to college early. I mean, you're on a full scholarship. The USTA at one point said they did some research and uh, the number was, uh, it was like $90,000, regardless of what the books, tuition, fees, boarding, meals, all that is – um, that that's how much money when you think about the support system. I mean, you got you got ten guys on the team and fifteen people helping the program. With yeah, um, being at um, you know, you mentioned McKinley. I mean, Chuck McKinley won Wimbledon, so I mean, you're just around people that you know. Steve was number eleven in the world um, in singles, two in doubles. Um, yeah. Kevin O'Shea, I was out there one time because Steve had talked about. Um, myself going out, they were hoping to get a new facility and have a learning center at A&M. And it was funny. It was, uh, is it Seth McKinley? Is Seth works for, work for Babylon? Maybe he still does. Yep. Seth is, yep. Bob's son. Yep. Still works for, for Babylon. Yep. So, a good player. He played big 10 tennis. So I think he, mm-hmm. think he played it for two. So Bob, Kevin O'Shea, the, at that time he wasn't the assistant coach. He was managing the camps and the facility and, I think maybe he just wanted to get it going because McKinley, Bob McKinley, was so so quiet, and uh, he said, "Well, certainly your son's tennis, meaning Seth, and your tennis, um, the way Seth plays was much higher than the way you played at the higher level." And mm-hmm. Bobby just kind of looked at him, and you know, obviously respectful of, of Seth's tennis. And, and Bobby just goes, "You mean if we?" He goes, "You mean if we played this afternoon?" And uh, he said, "No, no." <laughs> and, and so. So anyway, Gavin O'Shea made a comment to those guys, like, no, the tenants today. And, um, you know, I was just telling Harold Solomon today, go to YouTube and watch Rod Laver in 1975 play Jimmy Connors at um, Caesars Palace in Las Vegas. It's amazing tennis. But would you recommend, I know you went at 17, would you you recommend, I mean, if you could do over again, would you try to, even though it was so expensive and, and you know the yeah. Uh, you mean going early? No, go not go early. Stay all four years. Just and going to college. And go to college one year later. You know, um, 
It was the, the, the only thing I think that um, is a negative about going early, you know, which is kind of what happened um, in my situation was I started in the spring, which was great. Uh, jumped right into matches, um, which to be honest, I personally love that. I didn't, you know, obviously the fall is a bit different in, in college because it's just the individual stuff. So it's not as much action, um, you know, as, as the spring is. You're playing dual matches right away. Um, so it was a cool experience to jump in. Um, you know, I, I think I got a little bit fortunate too. I had a good couple of first dual matches and the first actual home match, um, it came down to my match. So it was three all and, um, it came down to my match to clinch and I was able to win that. And that just kind of, you know, gave me some confidence moving forward and it worked out um, great there. But the only issue I have with, with that is, um, I would want whoever would go early to, to focus on either, you know, doing a bit more hours, maybe in the summer, especially in the early summer. Um, the first session in the summer to graduate in time. I think, you know, for me, I, I have graduated now, which um, was a was a big goal of mine to do. Um, but I played three and a half. I played four seasons, but I was there three and a half years, so I didn't have enough credits to graduate when I turned pro. And um, you know, I see a lot of guys that do that and they don't finish their schooling, or or they you know maybe turn pro a year before that, and then now they've got a year and a half or two years of school left, and obviously that's a bit more daunting to come back and get your degree. So. Um, you know, it puts you in a little bit of a tough spot, um, for that, because obviously when you finish playing your four seasons tennis, you, know, you can't play tennis forever. So, um, you know, you, you want to go pro right away and play the tournaments right away. So, you know, it, it kind of puts you in a tricky spot for that. Um, but I don't think I regret it. I think it um, worked out well in my situation, but, um, I think Virginia actually has a great program there where they, when they bring guys in, I don't even know if they allow guys to come in early, but when you go there, you, you, if you, unless you turn pro obviously early, you have to graduate in four years. So they don't give you the flexibility to be like, Oh, you know, I'll do the fifth year, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but I think it is good for the coaches to really, you know, put their foot down and, and make guys, um, make guys graduate. I mean, it's such a good opportunity to take advantage of that. I mean, playing at a good school and, and, uh, and get a good degree while you're there. I mean, um, you know, it teaches you, uh, priceless time management skills. I think you mature as a person. I mean, you can tell, even now on the tour, the guys that have played in college or haven't, um, just with how they handle, you know, situations, um, you know, in life or around tennis, managing their time and, and stuff like that. I think it's a very, uh, a good, a good thing to have that college experience behind you. And, um, you know, so that's the only kind of regretish thing I would say is, is not being able to graduate when you finish your, your actual tennis playing career there. I forgot that you in January. I do remember that uh, mm -hmm. right, right out of the box, right out of the gate, the get go, that uh, you played a three all match. I'm always telling these young kids who want to play college tennis. I mean, less than three percent of juniors play college tennis. It's not easy to play college tennis, even like a high level Division three. Sure, but I think especially if it's in the NCAA tournament where you're playing a three all match. And if your team wins, you move on, you lose. How many, do you remember how many three all matches you had? I actually had quite a few. Um, is the exact number? No. Um, but I, I had probably, probably at least seven or eight. Um, and, uh, over my career, I'm not in that first year, obviously, but, um, you know, it's pretty cool to start off with a win there. That's, you know, it's a very positive experience. If you win it in a very negative experience, if not, but I was fortunate enough. I think most of them I was able to pull through, um, but we didn't have any big three all ones in the tournament. Um, so yeah, like you said, you know, when it's, when it's winter go home, that makes it a very, very high pressure situation for, for some young kids to handle. No doubt about that. Uh, I know Patrick Gibson, 
Um, he played for Steve. I've spent time with yep. Patrick. Uh, he went, he went early, I believe Matt Clore, um, you know, he looks back at it, but you know, Matt, you grew up in a small town in Western Carolina and didn't have the exposure that you did. So I don't think he had the inner belief system that he, he was good enough to play pro tennis. So, I, I mean, everybody's journey, everybody's life is different. Um, Coming back to being in Texas, you said you're an adopted Texan. Uh, one thing I like, oh, yeah. I lived there 10 years. Uh, I've been out there many times on business. Uh, both my kids were born in Texas. The Texans have missionary zeal. They're like the people, wow. people from Boston. They think it's the greatest place in the world. And you got to respect that. <laughs> so tell us, why, 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 do you, why are you now an adopted Texan? Yeah, I mean, I love it. Uh, like you said, I think the, the pride here is great. I mean, you know... Where growing up in Florida, I mean, I you know I, I like Florida. It's not like I don't like Florida, but um, you know, if someone says something bad about Florida um, when you're sitting around at dinner or whatever, you're just kind of like uh, whatever. And if you do that, if you say something bad about Texas in front of someone from Texas, they they legitimately get angry and and uh, and cause a scene. So it's it's one of the few places I've ever been that that has that. You know, no matter how calm the person is, everyone has a big sense of pride in in Texas and. Um, you know, I, I, in growing up in Florida, I, I didn't, you know, hunt obviously or fish or listen to country music or anything like that. And, um, and going to school at A&M, I, I had a roommate my first year that was from a small town, uh, about 45 minutes from, from college station, uh, called Franklin. And, um, his name's Austin as well. Yeah, right. And yeah, Austin Chorus. And we, um, we lived together for, for three years after that, three and a half years. And, got really close and we're still really close. We still go on a hunting trip every year and, and try to see each other as much as we can, obviously with my insane schedule. But, um, yeah, he, he was playing country music, obviously in the room and, um, you know, I didn't like it at all. And it's one of those things that everyone that's come there, Jeff Dodonla said the same thing. Um, you know, we had a bunch of guys from Tampa on the team actually, uh, strangely enough, but, um, uh, when they come there, they say, I'll never listen to that. I'll never like that. And every single one of them in, in, two weeks is, is that's all they listen to. Um, it, it's kind of funny how that works, but, um, yeah, so I got into that and then we went to his, um, to where he's from a couple of times and, uh, was able to hunt some and, and, um, you know, and, and shot a hog on one of the first hunts we had. And so it was, it was kind of a quick entry to that. And then I started fishing a good bit and, and it was a good, uh, kind of escape from obviously the huge grind of tennis and, um, you know, working yeah, every day, you know, practice to have, you know, school and everything. It was a good break from that. So I really fell in love with that lifestyle and the slower pace of the small towns, how everyone was not in a rush to do everything. I mean, traveling as much as I had already at that point, you just feel like you're always, you know, you got to do something, you know, you got to pack, you got to unpack, you, you know, you're, you're going somewhere and there was just no rush at all in, in some of these small towns. And I, I love that. So, um, yeah, I really started to like that aspect of it. And then we, kind of kept the hunting tradition going, um, for the last, um, you know, 12, 15 years. And, um, yeah, so we, and I, you know, we, I had some various movement after that. I was back in Florida for a bit in California for a bit, but I felt like I was always much more at home in Texas. And when we came back here about five years ago, uh, you know, there was that instant, um, you know, this is where we, where we want to be feeling. So, um, we've been here since and hopefully we'll be for, for a long time. So, well, you mentioned Texas pride. I think the Aggie spirit might be greater than oh, man. Texas uh, pride. That's, that's probably true. <laughs> uh, living in Tyler, Texas, Coach Laura Hanna, who played at A&M, and through that experience, coached uh, one of her teammates. I mean, we're taking them to Europe. But I coached Laura 
you know, in the younger age groups. And so through that, I got a chance to train the PE teachers at A&M. I actually took uh, Vic Braden to A&M and it was, uh, it seemed like it was 500, maybe it was 350, but you had, you had the PE majors had to go on Friday night and we did a do's and don'ts slideshow. And the kid, Clayton Stanley, a coach forever, his parents both went to Texas. He played at Texas and he was 10 and he didn't know any better, but he was wearing these because it's very easy in Tyler, Texas to say, okay, we got to gather some A&M clothes and we got to gather some Texas clothes. And we, we had young Clayton, um, you know, he was wearing like too big a cowboy hat and big shoes, his shoes around the wrong feet and no, no, no sock on one foot and a sock on the other. And, and, you know, just in tor- terrible form hitting, say, a forehand volley. And then we had, a, had him wearing Aggie clothes, and he had perfect form. So, <laughs> so I, I show this slideshow, and the, the guy, the people were going crazy. Yeah, that's right. They get up, and they're spinning like they do at the football game. And so then I took Braden, and I said, Vic, okay, you're going to come to Tyler, Texas. But let's go to Texas A&M instead. We'll have the kids from Tyler, and we'll watch a, watch a match at the end. And and that, that was what we would do. We'd go and train to teach the PE teachers and we would stay for a weekend match. So anyway, Vic showed that slideshow and he, you know, the late Braden. I know your dad brought you to meet Vic. So he, yeah. he uh, Vic shows this and talk about wanting to have something on film. The, the, place, the place went absolutely crazy. Um, question with uh, A&M, uh, you stayed four years. I mean, um, are you... You think career-wise that was a good move? Would you recommend kids to just take college tennis one at a time? Or now that everybody's staying so fit, I mean, you're 32 and you're a young guy as far as the double circuit's concerned. What are your thoughts I, on people staying for four years? Yeah, I, I think it's great. I mean, I um, you know, I think a lot of guys don't realize how high the level is in college tennis until you're you're there and you're competing against not only the guys in your team but but all the teams across the country. I mean the level is just exceptionally high, um, you know, and it's starting to show a bit with the translation into the pro side, but, um, you know, I try to recommend a lot of the young guys. I mean, there's, you know, I, I had obviously the influence of some of the IMG people as well, you know, saying you go pro college is a waste of time, this and that. And, um, you know, I'm, I think one of the best decisions I've made in my career so far is, is definitely going to school. Um, probably followed closely by staying in school the whole time and playing all four seasons. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I just think there's just so many advantages, you know, if you look bigger picture at not just not just the tennis, but the time management, um, you know, dealing with relationships, dealing with, uh, you know, making time for your friends, but also having to study, having to get ready for a big match, um, putting in extra work on court. I mean, it's it's actually impossible not to improve um, with the facilities and, and um, you know, the way things are set up at colleges now, especially the big schools with, I mean, just the gyms and stuff are, are out of control. Nice. Um, you know, you have every recovery facility you need. Um, you know, if you pick wisely, you've got two great coaches, you've got teammates around you that want to get better. Um, you know, there's really no reason not to get better um, in, in a college environment. And I think um, the pros just outweigh the cons so much with, with the, the life skills you acquire and, and just be maturing as a person, um, you know, which is a big deal, obviously in, in tennis now, um, you know, to play a full schedule, you have to be physically ready for that grind. And I think um, even more than physically, I think you have to be mentally ready. I mean, because tennis is a unique sport, obviously, where you you lose, I mean, a lot. You lose every single week, except if you have an unbelievable year, two weeks of the year. So, I mean, you're losing all the time. And I think 
how how you deal with that um, separates the guys that that make it and the guys that don't. Um, you know, you have to be able to lose and and move on and, and get back to work and and not get too high and low and and kind of be on this roller coaster ride, which is so easy to get sucked into. Um, you know, like I mentioned, the juniors, not only juniors, but on the pro tour in college, I mean, every level has it. So I think in college, it's a good, a good place to, to mature and, and kind of get a better perspective on, on things in general. So I, I would say definitely it's a good, a great option for kids. Your, your teammates with, yep. there's some A&M players that are on the tour. Um, how, let's start with this. How many of your teammates are working in tennis or how many A&M um, um, yeah, there's a few. Um, era. Sure, there's, there's a few. I mean, Jackson Withrow, um, you know, he, we never really got to play together because he redshirted um, my freshman year, but um, but um, he uh, he's still playing on the tour now, so he's still doing very well. And Jeff Dadamo, who was my doubles partner in college, he played on the tour for a bit, um, and he's actually out of tennis now doing some um, – uh, financial stuff, but um, there's a few. Uh, the the a Russian guy, Alexei Grigorov, he's in tennis. Alexei Klegu, um is also in tennis, working with some some young pros in Europe. Um, actually, had worked a lot with um, Davidovich Vokina, uh, the guy that's playing really well now um, when he was younger. And um, and then um, yeah, some of the other guys are still some of the Texas guys are still some country clubs and some academies in the sport. I would say probably more than half are still involved in tennis um, in some way or another. Alexi, what did you guys call him? What was his nickname? Giggy, Ziggy, Giggy? Goo. Was it? Yeah, Goo, uh, Clay Goo was his last name, and we called him Goo. Goo. Um, and then we called Griggy. Alexi Grigorov was the, the Russian gunner team, called him Griggy. Griggy, that's right. And, um, yeah, Griggy was, yeah, I think, Griggy was sent yep. to me, and I remember it came a couple times, his father came, and so many, so many stories with, Oh yeah. Uh, was he back in Russia? Is he coaching? Yes. He he's back in Moscow. We actually, um, he is coaching. We, um, I got to catch up with him a couple of years ago. We played the tournament in Moscow in the fall, um, which, um, probably won't happen anymore, but, um, that was three years ago, I guess in 2019. And, um, he was over there coaching some and came out to the tournament and we got to catch up and, um, spend a couple of days together, which was awesome. We had a great time and he, they actually had a Texas barbecue place there in Moscow, believe it or not. And, um, yeah, we had a good time catching up and it's funny how those guys that you get close with in college, you, you can be away and not talk to them for five years. And then when you, you know, when you kind of see them again or, or meet up somewhere, it's like, you kind of never, you never left, you know? So it's a quick, yeah, catch quick up, catch up. Catch and up in a minute, yeah, it's crazy. He was a volunteer coach and I was at the NCAAs. And, uh, I mean, he just had no filter. Just, he just, he just, yeah. just came up because after your junior year, you started coming forward and, and now uh, he just came up and just Austin is coming to the net. Now no one can touch him. He didn't come to the, net the first and second time you told him. And I think the reason that he did that was, uh, actually, um, at this, in the same pretty match, pretty much the same conversation. Steve, Steve was right there, Steve Denton. He goes, I didn't do what you told me to do, you know, with, with, with whatever it was. But, uh, no, I can remember, uh, you guys playing, um, against each other in the four teens at the Eddie Her. And nice, nice guy, Austin. I said, Austin, you need to go get an umpire. 
And, uh, you know, consider years later, uh, the guy is so honest. He goes, yes, yes, I was cheating him. It's like, no, no secrets. Um, with um, World Traveler, Rob, you were, I, this is a compliment, low maintenance. I remember your dad telling a story um, that he had dropped you off at the airport, had you all set, and, you know, you were really young. And by that time, cell phones were out and you called your father up and, you know, he was, you know, like an hour and a half had already gone by. And, uh, you know, he just, well, you're just going to have to figure it out. He tells, it, he tells yeah. that story. Um, but no, I would, you played, when you played Futures, uh, maybe some challengers, but I think Futures, I I got a kick out of, uh, we're trying to help your parents with the hotel costs and you stayed with a lot of my former students. When, Definitely, yeah. When you were traveling. We had a bunch of amazing people, yeah. It was awesome. But for huge our, help. What's that? Oh, huge help. Oh, thanks. But with, with yep. uh, for our listeners is that Austin would, you know, I said, well, just, you know, if you're not playing a match, um, you know, you need to practice twice a day, get to the gym, but help out. But uh, you get the get so many compliments for your work ethic. Um, you know, if it, how's it go? It won't work if you work. Um, the, um, tell us about, I know you've, you know, you've, you know, you mentioned LA and Las Vegas. And I mean, you were spent a little time at our place in Tampa. Uh, but at one time you were, uh, house sitting for the Bryan brothers. Tell us some competitiveness or some stories on their competitiveness, the Bryan brothers. You spent a lot of time around those. Guys. Yeah, I did. Yeah. They're, they've been great mentors to me and, and I got the privilege to play against them a couple of times and lucky enough to, to win a couple of those, but they're, they're unbelievable guys. Um, you know, obviously the best ever. Um, but yeah, they are exceptionally competitive. I've had some funny experiences with them at Davis cup and, um, a couple of random practices at the Houston clay courts. And, um, yeah, I mean, they're, they, they get mad. I, 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 um, almost signed up at the Houston clay courts one time. We were at, at one of the back courts practicing just us three and uh, we were doing some drill or something. And, um, I think Bob hit Mike or something. And, and, uh, so he got, you know, pretty pissed off and, and, uh, took a ball and just, just, slant, I mean, full power at Bob hit him. So Bob runs over, grabs a full Gatorade bottle and just absolutely, I mean, slings it at Mike, drills him in the leg, <laughs> bottle breaks everywhere. And they basically just go at it for, for like five minutes. And, uh, you know, I'm just kind of there and I'm, you know, like, what do I do? You know, I, and, uh, so it was just yeah, hilarious. And then, you know, Mike got mad. He's like, I'm playing with Austin the rest of the year. And, you know, so I'm just sitting there like, yeah, I can't tell if they're joking or whatever. And, um, so it's pretty funny. And then, you know, the, the great thing that is though, that five minutes later, they're totally fine, you know, and, and we're continuing on with practice. And, but, um, they were amazing in Davis cup. I got to go three times as a practice partner and, um, you know, I'd always be kind of helping out with the double stuff. And, um, you know, I'd, I'd play sets with Ryan Williams or Dennis Kudler a bunch of other guys we played doubles against them and, and the Bryans were known for, for never losing um, two up two back games or sets at, at all really in practice the whole Davis Cup like they just they didn't lose um, and that's how high they held their standards in practice and stuff which is obviously a big reason of why they were so successful but um, we, we got lucky a few times and won some 21 games and sets and and uh, and they were not happy um, <laughs> a bunch of times so it was it was pretty funny but uh, it was a great lesson though, you know, just of how, you know, from the time, the minute they step on the court, um, to the minute they step off, they are, I mean, pedal to the metal. 
they barely take, I mean, their practices are notorious, but they, they barely take any, any breaks for water. I mean, it'll be, it might be an hour and a half, but it, you feel like you're out there for three and a half hours because they are just, I mean, next, I mean, miss a ball and next ball. In. I mean, it's just nonstop repetitions. You're hitting a ton of balls. And if you blink for a minute, I mean, you're going to get hit. You know, they're just, they're so intense and, and, and focused and, and full go. Um, you really have to raise your level. And I think I, I took a lot of good lessons from them and I, you know, I still don't do probably as good of a job as, as they do, but I, I try to, to try to, uh, you know, match some of their standards with that kind of stuff. And I think that's been a good lesson for me, especially as a younger player. Famous story. You know, obviously you're an insider for me. It's like, Oh yeah, I heard this. I heard that, but they were on the way out to the U S open perhaps to play another final. They're in a cab and they get in the fight in the back seat. Of course, Bob's a little bigger than Mike, but Mike's ready to, to throw the punches. <laughs> Yeah, it doesn't surprise me. The, um, <laughs> but no, uh, someone told me that um, they may start playing pickleball. And I mean, they would be awesome. I mean, there's money to be I think so. pickleball. I, have you, there is. Have you, yeah, have, you, have you heard that those guys? Yeah. It's hard it's, to uh, know it, if they could be away from competing. And that's a good point. I think it would have to be some, yeah. I mean, just the competition aspect of it would be, uh, you know, attractive for them. But, yeah, they would be very good. Pickleball is, pickleball is pretty fun. I've got to play a few times, and it's it's a it's pretty addicting. A little bit different strategy, but it's it's addicting for sure. Didn't one of the Bryans maybe Bob? Your dad was telling me he went out to Indian Wells with you recently. Yeah, uh, yeah, Mike. Mike, uh, Mike. You know, we we come really. Yeah, Mike. Uh, you know, he he's in Tampa a bit more. Um, so um, and Bob's down in Miami. But uh, Mike came out a few days and in in uh, Indian Wells and was helping us out a little bit in in practice and um, yeah it's uh, anytime you get to spend around those guys I mean Bob as well in Miami and stuff it it just it makes a huge difference for us as a team and um, you know we just try to soak up everything we can obviously you know they've been in uh, so many big matches and and handled the pressure so well that it's just a lot of um, a lot of lessons there to be had and hopefully we can continue to learn. I know Bob's helping out some with Davis cup now and, and Mike's trying to get more involved as well. So it'll be good to have those guys around. And I hope they, they stay, uh, stay in the game and, and, um, and keep helping guys. So. Yeah. Patrick McEnroe said uh, the Brian brothers, they get pumped up for breakfast. <laughs> it's amazing. Their, their energy level, um, with doubles, uh, no, uh, exciting to watch you play the French open. Uh, was it three match points? You probably don't want to hear that, but yep. you guys were, yeah, yeah. I mean, you, had some, you had some amazing returns at the, I mean, throughout the match, but at the end, uh, tell us a little yep. bit about with your, uh, your US opens around the corner. Tell us about, uh, your doubles partner in the men's doubles partner in the mixed. You mentioned, yeah, so you mentioned Bugul already, Jessica. Bugul. Yep. We're playing with Jessica and mixed. And then, um, I'll, I'm playing with Elon Dodig in men's. Um, we've been playing, uh, through the summer, we started a tournament in Belgrade after Monte Carlo this year. And so we've had a few months, um, you know, kind of putting in some work. We've had some, some tough matches early on and really found a, a stride there on the, on the end of the clay court season and, and played great through the, through the grass. And, and, um, you know, it's just tennis that it goes the cycles and you have some good weeks, you have some bad weeks. And, um, yeah, we, we had a great French open, obviously, um, put ourselves in a position to win. Um, we had three match points there in the finals. Um, great tournament um kind of filled uh with some of the highest highs i've had and and maybe maybe one of the lowest lows um at the end it's amazing how tennis is a sport that that can happen where you can have such a great week but still at the end you're 
you're kind of devastated. So it's a, it's an interesting sport to say the least, but um, yeah, we've had a good, a good summer and, and um, put in a lot of good work leading into New York and yeah, we, we feel great. We're, we're both healthy and, and feeling good and excited to get out there and compete and, and give our, give ourselves the opportunity to do well. So the scoring format's the same in all four grand slams as far as. Uh, except Wimbledon is three out of five still. So that's the only but, one. Uh, what are your thoughts yep. on that? I like it. I like it a lot, actually. Um, you like the three out of five. Yeah, yeah, I think it's cool. We don't get to play even in Davis Cup anymore. We don't get to play that, so um, I think it's a cool, you know, cool opportunity for us to play longer matches. And you know, I think it gives a little bit of an advantage, maybe to the to the more solid doubles team. Uh, you know, it's, it's not easy to beat anybody three sets in a row, you know, or three sets at all. So if you, you know, can kind of stay out there and and play well, you're going to have an opportunity at some point, you know, it's just a long time to be out there playing a tennis match. So it gives a different, different perspective, brings fitness into play, which is, you know, one of our strengths as well. So, you know, I, I like it. As a, as a lefty with four in the middle, do you generally play the same side or can you play both? You prefer it? I I played both. Yeah. I played both Uh, throughout my career. I played ad mostly actually. Um, but with Yvonne, I have played deuce the whole time. So I, yeah, forehand in the middle, which is a big advantage, especially as returner's partner. Um, you know, get that forehand volley. It's a little bit easier to move on that. And, um, but yeah, I've play, I played both. I think it's, um, it seems like there's, there's a good bit more, at least the top level guys that prefer returning on the ad. So I think it's actually a big benefit if you can be a good deuce returner. Um, it opens up a lot of opportunities for your partner wise, um, just because there seems to be a lot more, especially singles guys prefer usually to play returning on the ad side for whatever reason. Well, I think throughout junior tennis, typically what happens is, uh, the better player plays the ad court because the theory is that's the game. In Great the point. Brain, but, 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 right. but the big brain used to always say it's the point before what determines whether you're ad in or out. Actually, in the yeah, deuce true. court, we're always telling people that for the most part, you got to do the math. You can't just throw an opinion out there. Keep it fact-based. If players play in the deuce court, players play in the ad court because of how the score is set up, I mean, it, it does switch around during the tiebreaker, but in regular games, if for game number one, you're returning, and the deuce court player takes three returns, the ad court player takes two. Now the game three, when you're returning, the deuce court player is right away taking the fourth return. So they end up taking more more returns. And then right sure. typically have a very strong continental grip, elbow in, have a tendency. This may not be at the pro level, but certainly at the lead-up levels, and there's so many of them, grassroots level, junior, college, futures, challengers, so many steps. But the, the, the player is typically, 85% of players are right-handed, and they'll hit forehand volleys mostly to the, the deuce score. It's kind of like, the kid who can't catch in baseball is picking their nose or picking dandelions. You put them in the right field because also too, also too, the people who are running the righties, 85% or more are running around their forehand and they don't swing horizontally. They have a horizontal pull, but the deuce court player, Braden used to always say has to be more consistent. He has a fantastic tape. It was set up for mixed doubles. Mixed doubles is a fantastic adventure, but everything on that tape, um, you know, and a lot of times, uh, you know, like Martina Naratilova, who did so well, has said, "Well, women women playing mixed is now is still real doubles. It's not one up, one back. It's going forward." Um, the um, 
What are some trends that you think are changing in pro tennis is, is they, is with, with doubles? Well, yeah, I mean, I would say nowadays there's not, there really aren't that many just very natural good volleyers anymore. Um, you know, obviously a lot of the singles guys especially, but a lot of the doubles guys too are staying back now, especially on clay, on second players. Um, you know, and I'm still a little bit more of the traditional style where I come in on, on everything that I can. But um, there are a lot more guys that are staying back. Um, you know, I think a lot of guys are getting significantly closer to the net now. Um, you know, it used to be you, you'd have room if you had a decent return to get across and then you, the player would have to hit a first volley and, and you can kind of work your way into the point like that. But now the strategy for most teams is, is they want to finish the point with the serve or the, or the volley right away. So they want the net guy to get the first ball. So the guys are playing a lot more eye formation. They're getting, I mean, literally an inch from the net, if not closer, um, and borderline reaching over every time. So it's, it's kind of an interesting change. So I think actually because of that, the lob is, is coming back a bit off the return. I think that's an effective play now against a lot of the top teams that just, you know, get their nose on the net. And, um, you know, I think also playing that way, um, being so close in that your volleys don't have to be as good. You kind of just put yourself in the right position and you, you can get away with some more average volleys, you know, shaking some volleys just by being in the right place. And um, you can tell a lot of guys aren't natural volleyers, but they're very good position volleyers. So they get, you know, where they need to be. And um, so, you know, the, the art of hitting, you know, really difficult first volleys and stuff is, is fading a bit. Um, but, you know, it, at the end of these, some of these big tournaments, you still see some of the, the, the classic doubles teams that play well all year come through. So, um, you know, this format as well, and not in the slams, we play full scoring, but in the Master Series and 500s and 250s, we play no ad in a third point, a third set tiebreaker. So it makes it, it makes it very difficult. Um, if you, you know, get behind in a service game, um, you're in, you're in big trouble. Uh, first points are critical. And, um, you know, it just makes it tough. And obviously if you get to a third set tiebreaker, it's, it's a bit of a coin flip. Um, you know, anybody can beat anybody. And, um, that's what makes me so impressive with the Bryans is they can, they went from the old format to the, to the new format and they were still just as dominant, if not even more dominant. So it's very obviously impressive on their end of, of show actually how dominant and successful a team they were to be, to do so well in both, um, scenarios. It's amazing. I'm sure. In your college days, you met Chuck Creasy. Was he, yeah. So Chuck is yep, uh, very opposed to uh, any anything being a shorter format. No ad, short sets. He told me that one of his friends, I think it's a great idea. I don't ever see this happening. But if you're going to play the 10-point match tiebreaker, have that be the first set. So then the third set still is a third set. I think that's a great idea. It's like, okay, the first set, <laughs> the first set's a tiebreaker. And then after that, you're sure that there will be a third set. What do you think of that idea? That's, that's an interesting one. I mean, it's not, it's not terrible. I, I would at least make the, the third set of, yeah, I, I actually, I don't mind that. The, the other format that we kind of were pushing for a bit was to have at least add scoring. So regular scoring in the first two sets. And if you want to have the third set tiebreaker to make, you know, obviously they don't really care about the you know the game or the players they they want to sell more you know have more tv dollars and and uh you know make the time more efficient um so they're trying to get matches shorter basically um so i think that would be a fair compromise where at least you can put ad scoring back in to make service games a bit more realistic because sometimes you know you 
something happens and, you know, there's an unlucky break or something and you're down love 30, um, you know, even like a 1540 that, you know, that's with no ad scoring, that's three break points in a row, um, which makes it very difficult if you get behind early in service games to kind of claw your way out. Whereas deuce gives you a bit more, even if it's just kind of a mental thing, it gives you a bit more, you know, relaxed, uh, approach that you can, you know, serve your way out of the hole a little bit. So I do yeah, it's uh, an ongoing debate. I do think that it's unfortunate that they don't show more doubles because they, they, right. they shorten the, the, the format. Uh, you know, obviously, right. um, there's different ways with Tennis Channel Plus and streaming to, to watch matches. But yeah, I'm not too. I've never been too pleased with uh, you know the TV coverage of tennis. Um, to you know, yep. just just you know, okay, we'll come back to this match, and um, you know, you know, here living in the U.S., I mean, you're, there's certain players that are going to be on, and you have to watch the entire match. Even even if it's uh you know it's kind of a one sided six one exactly. six two and they just okay let's go to court let's go to court ten let's go to you know court six and with um, tell us a little bit about Philip Farmer yeah Phil's been great we've been working together for, for a little over a year now we started last um, last summer um, around Wimbledon time here in Dallas, it's been great to be obviously in the same place. It really helps a lot us being here and getting a good solid work base while we're home. Um, which has been great. That's something that I struggled with the last, you know, few years being in college station or wherever I was, um, not having a, a unbelievable setup at home where you can really get into good training and work on some specifics. So that's been great. I feel brings an unbelievable, uh, positive energy, um, to our team. Um, you know, Yvonne has a ton of, um, uh, my partner, Yvonne Doty, has a ton of experience, obviously, winning a bunch of slams and uh, being in all kinds of positions. He's he's um, a super serious guy, really, really hard worker. And I think Philip does an unbelievable job of, you know, balancing the team and, and keeping us um, in the right frame of mind in these big moments and tournaments. And, um, you know, I think we've made some some big improvements the last, the last year. Um, you know, and it's not always easy to see. Sometimes you get... Um, blinded by results you're not you're not looking at the performance and that's um you know what separates obviously the good guys is that they can focus on their level um more so than than the, the just the outright outcome and um and just trying to keep getting better as a player so i think we've done a good job of that and and uh, we're definitely headed in the right direction no i was around philip when he was a kid um because i was out in the dallas area living in tyler texas very up, upbeat guy. I've seen him, seen him a couple of times. Have you trained at the Lakes Academy? Yeah, so we're still in in the Lakes a good bit. We're we're um, yeah practicing there tomorrow. But um, we do hit. We have some buddies around town that have some courts at their house, and we we use um, SMU courts a little bit. Um, and there's a couple, obviously, a lot of nice indoor facilities around Dallas. So we always have that option if it's raining or. or as it goes in Texas, if it's 110 or, or if it's an ice storm in February. So we've got the option um, for that. But, um, yeah, we're kind of around the Frisco area, mostly. You have to say hello to Nicky Johnson for me. He owned, yeah, he owned yeah. the place, and uh, I, I trained him a little bit when he was a kid. A little bit when he was a kid. So let's tell, tell us, what are your dog's names, Krychek? Yeah, we've got two uh, big golden doodles. I don't know if you can hear him barking there. Um, one is named Moose and the other one's named Tucker. Um, but they're big 80 pound golden doodles. Um, one's still a puppy, the one barking there in the background. He's, he's a, a bit of a psychopath, but he's, he's getting there. He's, uh, he's just a year old the other day. So he's, 
you still got all the energy in the world. But sometimes, sometimes your parents are taking care of your dogs when you're on the road. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Definitely, they're coming up here actually this Friday um, before we head up to New York, so they'll be watching the, the grand dogs. Um, <laughs> so we obviously really appreciate that. But they're a handful. They're a handful. That's for sure. So two things. We'll end with uh, talking about your wife and, and such, but with, because uh, again, as I mentioned, your parents are both athletes and your wife was an athlete, but with uh, yeah. your health and only being 32, that's, that's, that's pretty young in doubles. Talk a little bit about age and how long the guys are playing. Yeah. I mean, definitely 32 is a bit on the young side in doubles. I mean, it used to be 32 was, was the end um, for most tennis players, um, you know, even not that long ago. So I think just with the advancement of, um, you know, fitness, taking care of your body, nutrition, um, having physios on the road, stuff like that has really, you know, improved or, or lengthened the age that players can play to. I think now it's more of a mental burnout, you know, just the travel and not being able to have a normal family life and this and that, that really burns guys out, um, which I, I totally understand. It's, it's, it's kind of a crazy lifestyle, but, um, you know, that's the mental side kind of gets the guys before the physical nowadays. So, you know, it's just trying to hang in there and, and, um, you know, try to do a reason, have a reasonable schedule. And, um, you know, luckily, like you said, most of the family was involved in sports and, and knows tennis. So, you know, my wife is a huge part of that. She understands uh, how ridiculous our schedule is. And, um, she played, um, tennis at, uh, Illinois, University of Illinois. So she's a very good player as well and, and kind of understands the scheduling aspect of it. And, um, but yeah, it's, uh, you can play in your, you know, tier 40 now in doubles, really, and even a little bit more if you wanted to. So she played at Illinois. Um, mm-hmm. What was her background? Did she played a lot of sports growing up, just tennis? Yeah, a little bit. She was a, a very, very good junior player. She grew up in St. Louis, um, so played in the Missouri Valley there. And, um, yeah, did really well in juniors and you got recruited um, all over. I think I think it was her goal at one time, maybe a bit more of her dad's goal, Um her to play some pro tennis um, as well, but um, you know, I don't, I don't, I think she, uh, she's extremely smart, so I think she was focusing a bit more on some academics, and um, and then ended up going to University of Illinois, which obviously has a very good program and history of success. Um, so she was a great player there, and um, you know, and got a bunch of different degrees, and she's she's um, super smart, did her masters at A and M as well, um, so. Yeah, she's definitely the the brains of the family, to say the least. So, <laughs> now, I've known for a long time. One of my sisters was off the charts with that test score yep. and grades, and she got a master's in math at at Illinois. Um, wow! But but it certainly helps to uh, be married to an athlete who has a tennis background because she just realizes your lifestyle and what and what it takes. Correct? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, that's a huge part of it, and yeah, I mean, there's really no no way to explain that. And, and, um, you know, I also think I joke about it, but I also think you have to be to play tennis for a living or, or probably any professional sport. I just obviously know tennis better. You have to be a little bit insane, um, <laughs> to do it for as long as I have and travel and, and, uh, you know, make the sacrifices and do all the little things and deal with the, the ups and downs and failures. And it's, uh, it's, uh, it sounds a little bit better than it is at times. Obviously you're living out of a suitcase and, and, um, you know, it's, uh, it makes it a little bit difficult, but, you know, it's opened up so many doors for me and, and given me the opportunity to travel the world and, and meet so many amazing people and, you know, give myself a position, uh, you know, the opportunity to be in a position to play on the biggest courts in the world and the biggest tournaments. And, um, you know, I'm, 
I'm uh, definitely grateful for that. But um, you know, it has its uh, it's uh, like anything else. It's tough tough times and moments as well. That's the good. And, and with scheduling, um, you you're at the level now. It's I mean, you just pretty much know what your schedule is. It's not like when you were. You know, coming up through futures and playing challengers, you you pretty much can set set your schedule and play where you please, right? Pretty much now, yeah. So actually, not it hasn't been that long. We um, had a bit of a period last couple of years where I could do that, and then this. Um, but even up until the French Open this year, a lot of the Master Series and five hundred levels and doubles um, are very difficult cuts. So realistically, if you're not in the top twenty five or so can't get in on these tournaments so um after the french open we were luckily able to yeah i would say you know now moving forward hopefully this year and stuff we can kind of pick the tournaments we want to play which is which is a great advantage to have but yeah for the last you know decade it's been kind of a you know you gotta kind of go where you get in and and you you hope to know your schedule but you don't always you know get in where you where you think and you might have to play a tournament and you know Korea instead of Japan or whatever it may be, but you might have to play somewhere where you didn't quite expect it, but um, keeps us on our toes at least. With uh, tell the listeners how it works. Um, like say Indian Wells, it's, it's not quite a two week event, but it's longer than a week. Correct. Yep. And the singles players mm-hmm. can drop out of the sky and bump the double doubles guys out. Um, yep. Obviously you now you're on the double side of it. Um, Explain how the cut works and what your thoughts are on it. When it like say a single, yeah, it's, it's difficult. Um, yeah, so the the cut is just ranking based, so it's a combined ranking. So for singles, obviously, it's your singles ranking, and and then however many guys sign up, you know, the cut might be at ninety or whatever it is. So then the double side, there's a doubles ranking, but you can use your singles ranking as well to get in. So whichever one is higher for you, you can use that. So there's essentially two of every spot. So there's, you know, obviously a singles guy that's 20 in the world and, and a doubles guy that's 20 in the world. So if the singles guy, you know, decides that he wants to play kind of last minute, you know, just to make a few extra bucks or whatever it may be, he can sign up and, and kind of bump the, the doubles guys that are trying to make a career out of it, um, you know, and pay the bills. They, they can bump them out of the tournament. So it, it's difficult because obviously if, if the singles guys do want to play and uh, compete and, and they're obviously great players and, and people – you know, I mean, there's an argument on the other side too, where, you know, people come to watch and it fills the stadiums, which I totally understand, you know, and agree with, um, you know, that that's great. But a lot of times, you know, the guys will kind of sign up just to, you know, just to get the prize money or, or get an extra practice day or something like that. And, and unfortunately that, that happens quite a bit. So it makes it a bit difficult um, for the doubles players to, to, um, you know, have a set schedule and be able to get into the bigger tournaments because obviously, at Indian Wells, the prize money is pretty good, and and it's a very nice place. So, the singles guys might want to play there a little bit more than say in you know a two fifty in in wherever it may be in Atlanta or something. So you just you know you just have to kind of wait and see. The cuts are always tricky, and and um, sometimes they're a lot higher than you think, and you might miss some tournaments that you thought you were going to be able to get into, and it makes it uh, just another challenge, um, you know, on the on the tour. So. One thing before we sign off, um, I'm doing my, my simple math here. So 25 years ago, I filmed you, um, mm-hmm. your first coach from Brandon, I remember him watching the tape and he was so positive. He's, you know, he, he said, no, you, you 
know, he recommended for you to go on and make changes. Do you remember who your first coach was? Yeah, Pete Stecker. Um, Pete Stecker, yeah. At BSTC, um, at Brandon Swim and Tennis Club there, um, where my dad played some some local matches and stuff. And, and uh, that's, that's kind of where I started and, and worked with him a little bit. And, and he kind of, you know, told us that, um, you know, we, we might need to find someone that could help me, help me, um, move forward a little bit quicker and stuff. And, um, yeah, worked out, worked out great. It's have a tremendous amount of respect for, for him saying that. And, and also for him instilling, you know, the love of the game. I think at that, at that age too, it's a lot about having fun and enjoying it and, um, so I think I got that from an early age, which was a big benefit down the road for sure. Yeah, 25 years. I mean, your parents did so many smart things where they, you know, they would organize. Um, this is before you went to uh, a voluntaries, but they would get juniors together and just play. Uh, there's right. so, yep. so many things. What, a, what a, a long career that you've already had. And um, knock on wood, it sounds like you're doing all the right things to stay healthy and Certainly, uh, not only just for the U.S. Open, uh, we've got two great partners, and you know, we wish you the very best with the U.S. Open, but it's been great to have you on. Uh, let's just sign off where if, if you know, you're just asked, what advice would you have for junior tennis players and their parents? I mean, uh, obviously, we tell people all the time that college tennis is a goal, pro tennis is a dream. I mean, it's so difficult right. to play college tennis, but if you had to give some advice to, uh, we'll just end with that, if you had to give some you already have throughout this whole podcast, but if you were to just give some sure. advice to uh, juniors and, and their parents, what would you say? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, one of the biggest things is for me and my success has been, you know, perseverance. I mean, there's, there's so many, you know, ups and downs along the way and things that you didn't think would happen do. And, and, um, you know, having a long-term vision, try not to get, you know, sucked up into the results of, of uh, junior events and then obviously it, it goes on. I mean, I, I wanted to play pro tennis. I knew that from a young age. So even when you get to, you know, some of the pro level entry level events and, and uh, college tournaments, you know, just have a longer term vision and, you know, realize that there's, um, it's more important to keep improving and becoming a better player than to necessarily win at that level or win that day. I mean, it's, it's a long game and, um, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of matches you're going to play over your, over your career. That's for sure. So, um, you know, I think perseverance is, is the number one thing to get through all those things and, um, you know, just focus on, on the long-term goal. So if it's, you know, on technique rather than, than playing the way to win or you know, obviously cheating or something like that in junior tennis where there's obviously a lot of pressure to do that, um, you know, that only gets you so far. And, um, you know, at a certain point, you know, all that, all that stuff just doesn't work anymore. And, um, and it's really the guys that buckle down and decided to, to become a better player every day that, that make it through the, the, the clouds there. Um, so you know, I would say that's uh, have a long-term vision for sure. Oh, thanks. Appreciate that. I think I have to sign off, but I used to tell you that cry chick, if you don't make it in tennis, you could be a model and that sure is help. <laughs> and that sure is help because you don't look like your father. <laughs> that's right. I, I, think yeah. I, I had to get that in as you got your good looks from your mother, but Austin, uh, <laughs> it's been great to talk to you. Uh, tell us one more time. What are the dog's names? Moose and Tucker. Moose, yep, they, uh, Moose and Tucker. And what kind of they are a handful? Golden Doodles. Golden Noodles. Okay. Doodles. Yep. Doodles. I, <laughs> I have to use that. Everyone, you know, once in a while I tell people I, I call them. I said, well, I even ask them if you were a dog, what type of dog would you be? 
And uh, and our dogs have it. Our dogs have it pretty good. They get treated better than most people, I'd say. So it wouldn't be a bad bad play to be one of them. That's for sure. No, definitely, <laughs> definitely in America, you can't use the line anymore that the coaches treat me like a dog. dogs are treated so 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 well but austin thank you so much i really appreciate the time i know our listeners uh and we'll see you down the road but good luck at the next tournament which is the u.s open yes sir thanks steve appreciate it man it was fun thanks go aggies yes sir have a great night yeah you too thanks listeners thank you for listening austin krychek um it's just amazing um you know, Austin, low maintenance, hard worker, um, like this, no roller coaster. But for our listeners also, too, the, what the parents have done, um, and, the, you know, all parents do it, but just from a tennis standpoint, you know, the attitude of the household, the lifestyle, um, total total commitment, and it's great to know that uh, he's loving tennis and still playing pro tennis and still playing the Grand Slams. Um, but uh, hopefully you've got uh, quite a bit out of listening to that. So thanks, Austin. Thanks, listeners. And have a great day. Adios, amigos. Adios.